Welcome to the For the Gospel podcast, where we're all about providing sound doctrine for everyday people. I'm your host, Kosti Hinn, and this is an incredible, special, and very long episode. This is a long-form interview that is coming out on video via YouTube with Micah Wilder. It is the most in-depth testimony that we have recorded to date. Micah came out of Mormonism. He was a zealous missionary. His mother was a tenured BYU professor. His father was a high priest. And we've had Micah on the program before, but never had him share this in depth. We are coming off a video filming of over 30 videos with Micah. He has been so gracious to partner with us to put out a brand new series from our Truth and Love series at For the Gospel, where we take different religions, break them down, and present to people clear truth for two purposes. Number one, to equip Christians so that you can reach people that are caught up in these different religions and you can dialogue with them in love and reach them with what we believe to be the true gospel. And number two, we want to help you if you're a person coming out of Mormonism. Maybe you're deconstructing. Maybe you have questions and and you're tempted to just give up on God or run to atheism or an agnostic viewpoint, or you're just confused because the abuses you experienced or the confusion you've been wallowing in. These resources are for you. We love you. We care about you. And we want to help you at least hear the truth and consider what we're putting before you. And so this is a two and a half hour sit down interview. Again, it's coming out on video via YouTube in the weeks ahead, but I just could not wait to release it to you. Maybe listen to this over the course of your commute this week. Uh, Maybe take a few days, absorb it, consider listening to it with a small group taking notes, but I think you are going to be incredibly blessed I'm not just saying this to be hyperbolic. I believe that the Truth and Love series we have coming on Mormonism is one of our most loving and clear resources to date, and I credit two things for that. Number one, the grace of God. He's doing it all, and he's using you, our generous partners, and so many incredible people behind the scenes. And number two, I have to thank Micah for the way he loves people and the Spirit's work through him. He has such a kind and gracious way about him, and yet so clear about the truth. And so enjoy this interview. I pray that it sharpens you, challenges you, and inspires you to live for the gospel. Hey, Micah, how you doing, man? Good. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I want to have a conversation today about your journey from Mormonism to evangelical Christianity. And I want to start all the way back at the beginning, but first kind of get us caught up on where you are now. You're a Christian evangelist. You are very bold about your story. Your family was in really deep with the Mormon church. And now you're not a disillusioned, you know, ex-Mormon who, who's gone agnostic or atheist or you've given up on faith altogether. You actually went from Mormonism to Christianity, what you would say is true Christianity. Why don't you take us all the way back and just walk us through your journey of what you believe God has done in taking you out of Mormonism and some of the things that happened, the cracks in the dam, if you will, that led to an explosion of, of truth and, and the true gospel and true faith for you. Take us all the way back. Yeah, I mean, so first I just, I thank and praise God. Like, I I would have never considered in my younger life 
as a, as a zealous Mormon that I would ever be where I am now. And that's a testament to God reaching the lost even when we're not seeking to be found. And that's where I was. I mean, I grew up in a very devout Mormon home, uh, actually away from kind of the heart of Mormonism. I'm from Indiana originally, so I was part of the minority um, and kind of took pride in that. My parents were actually converts to the Mormon church. So interestingly enough, my mother and father both grew up in nominal Christian homes. Uh, My father in a Baptist home, my mother in a Methodist home. And they knew enough of the Bible, but obviously not enough to understand the significant doctrinal differences between Mormonism and Christianity. And so when they were graduate students at college in Indiana, two Mormon missionaries knocked on their door. And so that is kind of how the history of Mormonism began in our family. And one of the things that they talk about is just how much they fell in love with those young Mormon men. And, and, and that is something that is, is very critical to Mormon missionary success is the genuine love and friendship that they develop with people. And so my parents began this long kind of process of studying the doctrines of Mormonism. And of course, this was in the 1970s. So there was no internet, there was no access to, you know, a lot of the things that we can now access. And so basically they had to trust the Mormon missionaries on what they were telling them. They were reading uh, Mormon scriptures and books, and they both felt like God was calling them to join the Mormon church. And so... The four of us children all were born and raised in it, and so we went to church every Sunday. I mean, by worldly standards, we had an amazing life. My parents were incredibly loving people. They were devout. They, they were devoted to their faith in God and Jesus and Mormonism. Uh, I remember as a family, we would pray together before every meal. We'd pray before even leaving the house. We would read scriptures together at six in the morning before we'd go to school. I mean, things that as a Christian, you know, now I actually learn and glean from that example that they showed me from their devotion to Mormonism. And so we went to church every week, youth group every Wednesday night, and it was like, even from a very young age, it was the core of my identity was my religion. Mm-hmm. And so I, I grew up and, and, and further you know, deepened my faith in God, my faith in Jesus, according to what I was being taught by Mormonism. And my life really changed when I was 14 years old. And that was my mother got a job to be a professor at BYU, Brigham Young University, right? So the prestigious private Mormon university in Provo, Utah. And so going into my freshman year of high school, I left the only home I'd ever known, all of my friends, and we replanted in Utah. And honestly, initially, I was not excited about that. I kicked and screamed and I I threatened that I was going to run away and live in the forest uh, because I had my life all together and I didn't want to start all over. And even like oddly enough, as a non-Utah Mormon, I kind of took pride in that of living in the mission field and being part of the minority. I didn't want to go be, you know, one of these Utah Mormons. Um, But obviously I had no say in the matter. And so we moved to to the great state of Utah. And um, I remember moving there, and the first day we were there, uh, we were eating dinner at a restaurant and somehow found out that our server was Mormon. And to me, I thought that was such a big deal because in my community, there were only a handful of Mormons, you know? And so immediately I realized, you know, it, it was kind of a unique opportunity to be immersed in a culture with people who shared that same belief system. And so as I grew up, I also grew in my faith in the church. And I began to really make 
my faith in Mormonism the center of my life instead of focusing on kind of the worldly things that most people do in high school. Um, I was really putting God at the forefront of my life. And I, I was very much akin to like Saul of Tarsus. Um, and he was advancing in Judaism beyond many people his own age. How extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers, like he said in Galatians 1. And that really described me is I was a young man who was zealous for God. I was just ignorant as to the true way to be right with God. And so I remember having this desire to know God and to be known by God. And that was just inherently bred in me from the time that I was a young child. And so the older that I got, the more that I connected my relationship with God to my faithfulness to Mormonism. And so I figured the better of a young Mormon man that I can be, the more works that I can do, the more faithful that I can be in following the laws and the commandments and the ordinances and, and showing my parents and my church leaders and my peers that I'm a good person and righteous according to the standard of Mormonism, that that was going to establish my right standing with God. And even like the idea, I remember... When I was a young kid, probably five, six years old, I went to a private Baptist school, ironically, as a Mormon. I was the only Mormon there. And I remember learning the story about David and about his relationship with God and scripture saying that he was a man after God's own heart. And I remember hearing that and I got jealous, like in my heart, because I thought, well, I want a relationship with God. Like I want to be special um, in God's eyes and I want God to know how much I love him. And so I, I kept that kind of in the deep, recesses of my heart my entire life. And when I became a teenager living in the state of Utah, surrounded by all these religious people, like I wanted to stand out amongst the best. So like I wanted to be the best Mormon because I wanted God to notice me. And I, and I wanted, I, I think ultimately I wanted his love, right? I wanted the confidence of knowing that God loved me, that he had forgiven me, that he would save me, and that I had that favor in his eyes. And so it was like a young kid just screaming for attention, jumping up and down saying, look at me, look at me. And so although I was self-righteous, like my motivation was not necessarily wrong. It was just misplaced, right? So I thought God noticing me and loving me was going to be contingent upon my ability to be good enough according to the standard that he had set forth in Mormonism. And so by the time I was you know, a senior in high school, I was kind of the pinnacle of righteousness of young Mormon men. If, you know, and I don't say that arrogantly, although at the time I would have boasted in that, but it's just because I was, it was the center of my life. Like I, I wanted God to, to love me. And so I went to the Mormon temple at 5.30 in the morning before I'd go to high school. I used to go to the Mormon temple and perform these works and ordinances with my girlfriend. Um, I, I, I would faithfully attend church every week. I would read the Book of Mormon you know, daily. I would do my scriptures. I would uh, uh, you know, read Mormon books. I would listen to Mormon music. I would just do everything to immerse myself in what I thought was making me righteous and cleansing me before God. One of the things I struggled with throughout my teenage years, and I think a lot of young Mormon men do, is feeling unworthy. And so there were times when I was tempted in the flesh and I would succumb and I, I felt like I had failed God and it would make me feel this burden of my own sin on my shoulders and I was constantly striving to 
you know, overcome that and, and then try to be good enough for God by, you know, abandoning my sin. And then for weeks, I'd feel like I was doing great. And then these moments where I would fall again in the flesh and, and I would just almost become depressed by, well, does God love me? Is he forgiven me? Have, have I lost my favor with God? And do I now need to endeavor with all my heart to get back into, you know, his good grace and his favor? And, and I vacillated, you know, times when I was a teenager, I felt really confident and I had more of that pharisaical attitude. And then other times where I just felt totally broken because I knew that I couldn't uphold even the law of Mormonism as no human being could uphold the law, you know, that God established on, on, on Sinai through Moses, which is the whole point that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that we need salvation only in and through Jesus Christ alone. And so I had a deep devotion in Jesus as a Mormon. He was the center of my, you know, even of my Mormon testimony. Um, but I didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus Christ really was. And that's because I hadn't fully immersed myself in the word of God. Like I didn't have that revelation that, that Saul of you know, Tarsus did on the road to Damascus where he had the physical resurrected Christ. And although that never happened to me, God reveals Christ through his word. And that's how we know God is through Christ. And that's how we know Christ is through the power of his word. And so I was kind of, I kind of had the perfect life on the outside. And as did my family, we were like the quintessential Mormon family. My mom was a, a tenured professor at BYU. My dad was a high priest in the Mormon church. We lived in this very uh, prestigious community called Alpine. My older brother, you know, went on a mission. Two of my brothers went on missions and we just kind of had this perfect life of Mormonism. And so when I graduated from high school, I felt like I was on top of the world and I was preparing for what I thought was going to be the greatest experience of my life, which was a two-year Mormon mission. And so it's a very um, culturally expected experience. The young men are expected to go and to commit two years of their lives to serving God through evangelizing and proselyting for two consecutive years. Um, and so I was preparing for that mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so when I graduated from high school, I did a semester at Brigham Young University. And even when I was there and I was a good student, all I could think about was like God and my relationship with God and going on a mission and going to the temple and like spiritual things. Which give, me, give me an example about, about like one of your prayers. Like how, because as a Christian, I have a context for prayer through the lens of the Bible. You were a Mormon. What did you pray like? Are you, are you praying to Jesus? Do you pray to the Father? Where is the Holy Spirit in there? I'd, I'd love yeah. to kind of get, a, get an idea of what that, that was like in your, in your zeal. Yeah. So as a Mormon, like you pray directly to Heavenly Father, and that's how you dress him as Heavenly Father. And it's a very kind of formal thing. So you use these and thous. You use kind of King James English when you pray in Mormonism. And, and I think they see that as a sign of respect, of adoration to God. Um, and so for me, it was just pleading that God would show me my place in life and in him, right? Because I felt like, so if you break it down from a worldly sense, right? Whether it was art, music, academics, athletics, I was successful in those realms. And I, I was proud of the things that I had accomplished through high school, but I always felt like there's this void in my life. And the void was a spiritual void. And so it was like, no matter how successful I was by worldly standards, I still felt like something from my life was missing. And that something was spiritual. And that was actually a prayer of mine constantly was like, God, like, what is this void and how do I fill it? 
And for me, the only thing that I knew to do was just to be better, right? And to be more zealous and more righteous. And so I kind of had this idea, well, going on a mission is going to answer this burning question for me. Like this is going to show me what my place is in life, in God's eyes. This is going to solidify everything that's going to fill the void within me. And so if I can go be the best missionary that the world has ever seen, then it's going to satisfy me, you know, internally. And so I, I really, leading up to my mission, even when I was going to BYU, I remember like I, I, I severed all secular things from my life. I stopped listening to secular music. I cut out, you know, just entertainment what in general. What did you listen to? Like a Mormon, <laughs> do you have Mormon Christian music? Yeah, they're, have... they're, they're actually like LDS artists, right? Okay. Mormon artists. Um, and so I exclusively listen to Mormon artists and, they sing and spiritual about God music. And they sing about serving Sure, yeah. Yeah, God or even about Joseph Smith or the restoration or things exclusive to the church. Um, and so I, I, I started to do that and just like tr- I was trying to make myself worthy because I figured the more worthy of a vessel I can be, number one, the more successful of a missionary I will be. And number two, the more that God will love me and, and show his love to me. And so when I was at BYU, I was doing all these things. And then I had a couple months from when my semester at BYU ended to when I actually went on my mission. And in those two months, I actually went to the Mormon temple in American Fork, Utah, and I requested to be a full-time temple worker, meaning that I would go there for eight, 10 hours a day, and I would be a worker that was helping people go through the ordinances of the temple. The reason why I wanted to do that was because in my mindset as a Mormon, the temple contained the presence of God. Like there is no more holy place on earth than the Mormon temple. They, they consider it to be the house of the Lord um, akin to the temple of Solomon or the tabernacle. It, in the tabernacle, it con- contains the very presence of God. That's what I wanted. As an 18 year old, 19 year old kid, what I wanted was to be in the presence of God. And so I figured if I can go there, like this is going to be the way that I will make myself most worthy to go be an effective missionary. So I spent every day in the temple. I remember getting in my car, driving there at 530 in the morning. I'd be listening to, you know, the Mormon music and just, you know, I remember like I would just break down in tears, like because I so desperately like wanted God's love. And I wanted to love God. And I genuinely felt that love throughout my life as a Mormon. Like, and, and I say this often, like, even though I didn't fully know God, that doesn't mean that God didn't know me. And it doesn't mean that he wasn't revealing himself to me in the only way that I could relate to him. It just meant that there was something full to come. And that fullness did come, you know. So God is, you know, God finds us where we are. And he knows us where we are. And he even loves us where we are. And even when we were enemies, he loved us. And he reconciles us to him by the death of Christ, right? And so if God didn't love us when we were enemies, we would never be saved. Because God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I knew that God was drawing me. And, and looking back, I know that God was drawing me into that relationship with him. And I would just break down in tears because... I just, I wanted that relationship with God more than anything else in the world. And so this all led up to this kind of zenith moment of my life, which was to go be a Mormon missionary. 
And the Mormon mission system is unique, and even the process of becoming a missionary um, is very unique. So number one, like you have to be worthy. Like not every Mormon man can just say, hey, I'm going to go be a missionary. Like you have to go through a series of interviews with your local leadership. You have to show that you're following the commandments, that you're paying tithing, that you have a testimony, that you're physically, mentally, emotionally capable of going and committing these two years. And what would be your testimony? Like as a Mormon, mm -hmm. you grew up. BYU, tenured mom, dad's a high priest, so what would be your testimony at that point? Yeah, so I would have had a very traditional testimony of Mormonism, and traditionally, there's like five pillars to the Mormon faith. Number one is faith in Jesus Christ. Number two is faith that the true church, that the Mormon church is the only true church on the face of the earth, that it is true in everything that it claims to be. Number three is that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was a true prophet of God. Uh, number four is that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. And number five is that the current prophet, whoever that is at the time, is a prophet of God. So the president of the Mormon church There's is revered as a prophet. prophet. Yeah, that he is a prophet. You have to have a testimony that he has that same prophetic authority that both Joseph Smith had as well as you know, the prophets revealed in the Old Testament. And so that is your testimony. And you have to have a testimony of all of those things. Like you can't believe in Jesus and reject the Book of Mormon. You can't believe in Jesus and the Book of Mormon and reject the current prophet. You have to have a testimony that encompasses all of those five pillars. And I did. I, I had a, test, a strong testimony, what I believed was a spiritual witness of every principal pillar of the faith. And, and this is probably you know, something that I should mention is like, well, how do you gain a testimony of Mormonism, right? Like, how do you know that the Book of Mormon is true or that Joseph Smith was a prophet? Well, our method for testing truth was through feelings. So like anything that we wanted to have a confirmation of truth about, we would simply go to our knees and ask God and the manner in which God would reveal truth to us was through feelings that we believed was a testimony of the Holy Spirit. So that was how God communicated to me. So if I was watching uh, the prophet on TV and I began crying and became emotional and felt this burning in my heart, that was a witness of the Holy Spirit that he was a prophet of God. So that's what's how I tested those things, and I had done that. I had had several powerful, undeniable spiritual experiences as a Mormon, and even now I don't deny that I had those experiences, but I now deny what the source was, you know? And so I had had this testimony of all these things, and so I had considered myself worthy. I had gone through the, the proper interview process, and my leadership told me that I was worthy, and so now it was time to go on a mission. So you fill out paperwork. And, and here's what a lot of people don't know is that more missionaries are all over the world, right? There's 60,000 missionaries all over the world, but you don't get to choose where you go. Like you, you don't get to say, well, I want to go to Australia or I want to go to Thailand or they whatever. They send you. Yeah. So they claim it to be a process of revelation. So literally, like the prophet or one of the apostles of Mormonism sits down, looks at your picture, reads your application, and says, this is where God is sending you. Now, I don't know how that process really works. That's just what they claim, that it is a process of divine revelation. And so I got my mission call. Um, it comes in the mail in this big packet, and you open it up, and it's got all the information about your mission, and on the top page is basically a letter from the prophet, and it says, this is where you're going. And so it's like a big deal for a 19-year-old young male missionary to find out where you're going to serve 
you know, God for the next two years of your life. And I had had friends that went to, I mean, exotic places all over the world. My best friend uh, went to Thailand. Another one went to Chile. I had friends that went to Australia, to Brazil. I mean, all over. My brothers were serving missions or had served missions. One of them went to Moscow, Russia. Uh, Matt, my, my next oldest brother, went to Copenhagen, Denmark. And so you were just like, man, I'm going to go to this incredible place and learn this language and be a missionary. And so I get my mission call and it's Mexico City, Mexico. Okay. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's, I wouldn't have expected that, you know, one of the biggest, dirtiest cities in the world, let's go. And so, and then they give you a time frame. They say, okay, in, in six weeks or whatever, they give you a date. And for me, it was February 11th, 2004. You're going to go to the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah. And so they actually have this huge campus in Provo, Utah. It's called the Missionary Training Center. This large campus comprised of several buildings, you know, um, that have living quarters and classrooms and all these other things. And you go there. And if you're learning a foreign language, you go from anywhere for nine to 12 weeks. And it's like boot camp. It's basically boot camp for the military, but for Mormon missionaries. Wow. And so I remember that day so vividly. Um, it was a very emotional thing because I'm with my family. We're getting out of the car. I've got my suit on. I've got my, my white shirt, my tie on. And you kind of go to this little orientation meeting. And when that's over, like you're gone from your family for 24 months. You're not going to see them physically. Um, the, the, the rules of communication were very strict. Like we were only allowed to call home two times a year. So Mother's Day and Christmas, we could actually physically talk to our family. Other than that, we had to communicate either through emails with immediate family or handwritten letters to anybody outside of our immediate family. No phone call, just extra, Nothing. like, hey, was thinking about you today. Nothing. You know, so, so, and you know that that's the case. And so you're emotionally preparing for this severance that you know is going to be very difficult. And, and so you're just tearfully hugging each other and praying and it's like i love you mom i love you dad <laughs> i love you know and i love you Katie. are you looking through the lens of of god is sending you so yeah. in a way this is a sacrifice that comes from the divine the prophet has spoken you're going there and so you're it's it's noble exactly exactly and that is one thing that i i have great admiration for the zeal that is found in Mormonism for, for people like I once was. Not everybody that goes on a mission has that zeal. A lot of people go because of cultural pressure. I, I, knew, I knew a missionary whose dad said he'd buy him a car if, if he went on a mission, you know, because it's so culturally expected. Yeah. Um, and if you don't go, it's like you, you're ostracized. Like it's like a rite of passage. Um, but for me, it was like, I'm serving God. And this is the way that I can best serve God. And it is worth the sacrifice of my own family. It's worth the sacrifice of my girlfriend, of the comfort of my life, of my schooling, of all those things. And I look back on that and go, you know what? Like God instilled in me a zeal for him, even though it was a false a zeal for a false religion. And it's like, as Christians, like how much zeal should we have? How much more zeal should we have for the truth of the gospel? And, and that I want to continue that zeal in my life now as a follower of, of, of Christ, as a, as a disciple, as an evangelist, to say like the sacrifices I was willing to make as a Mormon, I should be willing to do that tenfold because I have something now that I didn't have then. And that was a knowledge of the true God and the true Christ and the true gospel. And so, yeah, so you, you're just in this emotional moment and it's like you go out one door, 
and your parents go out the other and that's it. And so you embark on this journey. And so you go through this kind of boot camp, the very strict. So you get up at 6.30 a.m., you, you know, shower, eat breakfast or whatever, and you, you're basically in classes like eight to 10 hours a day. You have like uh, an athletic time where you can go to the gym, you have, you know, lunch and dinner breaks. But other than that, I mean, you are just fully committed to learning, either learning your language and learning the doctrine. And for me, it was both. So I was learning the Spanish language while learning, you know, Mormon doctrine in Spanish uh, and learning these things. I memorized hundreds of scriptures in Spanish when I was a Mormon missionary, just in those nine weeks in the MTC. And you're just preparing because you feel like you're going out to battle, you know, because you have to understand that like you hold this mentality that you have the exclusive truth, right? It's what we have as Christians, right? We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. There is no other religious system. There is no other God. There is no other gospel out there other than the true saving gospel. And so we know that, and we hold that claim of exclusivity in Christ. Well, for me, that time of my life, it was a claim of exclusivity of the church, right? We had the authority and the truth, and only through this way can people be saved. I believe that genuinely. And so I wanted other people to have that. Again, like talking about that zeal, like as Christians, our greatest hope in this world is that other people know Christ as we do. Like that is our supreme calling is the Great Commission to make disciples. And as you say, to make disciples who make disciples. And so that was my MO as a Mormon missionary. That was my mission objective, go out and to bring people to this truth that that I held dear. And so I'm in the MTC, I'm going through this whole thing, and, and this is kind of more detail of my story I normally share, but I'm there, and all of a sudden, I'm playing basketball one day, and I felt like I got shot in the back. And all of a sudden, I collapse, and I can't breathe. And long story short, my lung had collapsed. Like here I was, this 19-year-old healthy athletic boy, and I have a spontaneous lung collapse. So I go to the hospital, I'm going through this whole thing, I'm seeing doctors, And I remember meeting with the MTC doctor, the missionary training center doctor, and he comes to me and he says, we can't send you to Mexico anymore. And I just like, but God sent me to Mexico. Like, you know, this divine revelation. Totally. I was crushed. And so eventually my mission was reassigned to Orlando, Florida. So that's how I ended up in Florida as a missionary, (laughs) right? That was not where I was originally designated to go, at least by the Mormon church. But I, I, I see it as... A course correction by God. That God somehow, in the right way, through the right person, said, nope, there's something here. And of course, in my testimony, you'll see that God had people, uh, I, I think, waiting for me wow. there, that, that God had people that he was going to use in my life. And why Orlando? Was there a medical, particular medical expert there or with your condition? Or they just moved it to an American outpost? Yeah, it was so basically, they just they didn't want me to leave the country. So I, all I knew was that I was going to be reassigned stum- somewhere stateside. Yeah. And so I ended up being Orlando, Florida. Um, we had kind of a joke in the Orlando mission. They called it the Band-Aid mission. So like people that were injured or had like <laughs> emotional problems or who had served overseas and they, they yeah. got reassigned to Orlando. Maybe it was the sunny climate. I'm I don't know. Disney World. So yeah. There you go. So I get to Florida, and um, so being a Mormon missionary, like the rules were very strict. And, and people, most people that see the Mormon missionaries riding on their bicycle, they don't understand like the amount of, the, the tremendous pressure that these young men and women are under. So, so you, you have to get up at 6.30 every morning. There's no, ex, like, like no exceptions. So 365 days a year times two, right? So you can never sleep in. You get up, 
you, you eat breakfast, you study for two hours, two to three hours, you study your language if you're learning a language, um, and then you go out and you what basically... Do you, what are you studying? Your books, your, what, are your, what are your core... I'm viewing this even through yeah. the lens of like Christians. Sure. They wake up and like, hey, I'm reading the latest <laughs> book by John MacArthur, right. Paul Washer, whoever. Like, who are you're waking up and you're re, or they're reading their Bible? Obviously, Christians will do yeah. that at times. You're waking up and doing what? Yeah. So we had a very like kind of structured um, study program, and primarily as missionaries, it came through a program called Preach the Gospel, and it was basically like this booklet that the church gave us that is like, this is how to be a good missionary. Okay. And so you go through that and you learn the things. It's got like worksheets in there. It's got scriptures in there. So you're doing that. Um, and then you're also reading scriptures, right? So primarily from the Book of Mormon, but you could be reading from some of the other Mormon scriptures or even the Bible. Um, and then we had an approved list of like missionary books that we could also read. But anything outside that, we weren't allowed to study. And so you're doing that essentially to sharpen your language skills and then also to sharpen your theological understanding of the doctrine of Mormonism so that you can um, be more fluent in communicating it. So for me, even though I was reassigned to Orlando, Florida, I was still a Spanish-speaking missionary. So my objective, I had a, a Spanish-speaking companion and we would go out primarily just to you know, native Spanish speakers. And so I learned Spanish and became you know, fairly fluent at, at some point on my mission and so, but you go out. I mean, after you study, you go out and you have to be out till nine o'clock, like every day. You have a 30 minute lunch break and a dinner break. And other than that, you're out all day. You're either, you know, meeting with members, trying to get referrals. You are going out on the streets and literally just like finding public areas and proselyting publicly. Um, knocking on doors was the common thing that we did as well. And, and you're just trying to make connections, to meet people, to talk to people. You're riding your bicycle. Um, it's very difficult um, because if you've ever done door-to-door -door evangelism as a Christian or street evangelism as a Christian, I mean, people, people can be really mean. Lots of slam <laughs> doors or they won't even come to the door. Exactly, exactly. Totally. So I would say out of 100 doors, maybe one person like, would actually let us in and you'd have a conversation. I mean, most why, people... Why did you guys ride, why do you ride bikes? I think part of it is just a cost thing, right? So you have two Mormon missionaries who are assigned to a particular geographic area. And you've got those all over the place. So you have like one in one town, one in the next town, one in the next town. It's expensive. If you're going to provide, if the Mormon church is going to provide vehicles for all those people, I think part of it is just cost effectiveness. So they provide the bike? You go uh, buy no, the bike. you provide your own bike. Once yeah. you get there. Yeah. And the, the, t the white... Always short sleeve mm -hmm. with the tie. Those mm -hmm. that's uniform. That's a uniform. Yep, and dark pants. Yep, dark pants and dark so, shoes, dark socks. Okay, yeah. so that's all uniform, mm -hmm. and I think that's helpful even for for me and for others who yeah. are going. Why why a bike? Yeah. Why this? Why that? And I think and another reason too is maybe just the practicality of you're going to meet more people when you're out on the street than if you're driving in a car. You know, so you ride on the sidewalk, you you see a person, you stop and you talk to them. And I have one more question. Yeah. Um, this is fascinating. I'm okay. Loving it. The, you've mentioned the ordinances several times. Mm -hmm. Could you quickly define for me the what are the ordinances you're doing? So you've helped a great deal define the books and the literature. Mm -hmm. You said going to the temple mm -hmm. and going through the ordinances. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining the way you describe it, stations or certain mm -hmm. practices or certain rituals. Could you take me there for a minute and kind of... What are the ordinances? Because I'm coming from a Christian context of, okay, the ordinances for me are <laughs> baptism and communion. Right, right. And I do those on Sunday or observe those. Yeah. For you guys, what are, what's happening at the temple? Yeah, so 
there's kind of two primary things that happen in the temple. Number one is they do vicarious work for the dead. Okay, okay. meaning that they believe certain ordinances to be saving ordinances. One of them is water baptism, baptism by immersion. Another one is like receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Okay, so those things, like if a person dies and they don't have those things done, a Mormon can do them on their behalf in the temple. So literally, you can physically go and be baptized in water for the, for dead. the dead, for a dead person. So those are part of the ordinances. Um, so the first ordinance of Mormonism is baptism by immersion. Um, the second one would be the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Um, and then the, the pinnacle of ordinances is called the endowment ceremony. And this is something that's extremely sacred to Mormons and they don't talk about outside the temple. So without like giving too many details that would be deliberately offensive, it's essentially like it's kind of Masonic in nature. And so there's like certain signs, there's certain like robes of the priesthood um, and certain hand signals and other things that they do within this. It's a ceremony, basically. So yeah, like even stations and things like that. You do it multiple times or you do it so once? So you do it once for yourself. And that's kind of a big moment for you. And once you do that for yourself, every time you do it, it is then on behalf of somebody else, of a dead person. It's a vicarious work. A devout Mormon and a very zealous one is potentially going back to the temple frequently thousands of times and and thinking of people they love and their their loved ones maybe a, a friend who died or yeah. and so you're technically there's no end to it well yeah and it's not like it's a very official process so like you actually have a card yep. with somebody's name on it that has their birth date where they were born, their death date, where they died. I mean, all that stuff. And it's an official process. So it's not just me going through and thinking about no, somebody. It's literally very like intentional. Yeah, it's a very intentional process. And so you're going through and you're doing it on behalf of somebody. And you're thinking about, you know, their salvation and other things. So, yeah, so it's those parts of the Mormon lifestyle are very sacred to them. And they were to me as well. And so I would go through and I as a Mormon temple worker, I was helping other people perform the ordinances. So, for example, uh, I would be in the baptism font and I would be the person baptizing other people as they you know were doing ordinances on behalf of other people um, the other kind of primary ordinance in Mormonism is actually marriage so in the Mormon temple people are married that's where their ordinance of marriage happens but it's unique and it's different than a traditional Christian marriage in that they are sealed and what that means is that their marriage does not end when they die. It's a ceiling for eternity. So they actually believe that they are married and they use the frame for all time or the phrase for all time and eternity. And another question on that, just again, for me to know the, I know some people will say, well, Mormons and polygamy is kind of a thing mm -hmm. or not. And we can get into some of that if you want to enlighten us. But the, is that also, can you be married to multiple people in eternity or is your eternal marriage to one person? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. Um, traditional polygamy, right? A man having more than one wife at the same time in the flesh has been outlawed for Mormonism for 120 years. Okay. However, if you're married to somebody and you're sealed to them in the temple and you remarry if they die, you can be sealed to more than one spouse at a time. In eternity then. Therefore, in eternity, technically, you can have more than one spouse. A man can, not a woman. Got it. Uh, you can't live polyamory, but you can live polygamy, which means a man having more than one wife. So okay. yeah, it's very interesting. Well, another question on that, because <laughs> I love how much you know all this so well. 
is singleness because mm -hmm. if marriage is an ordinance is singleness looked down upon or is it considered because i would assume you guys did you read paul the apostle would you read the new testament epistles as part of some of your mormonism and when paul says stuff about singleness and being zealous and a missionary almost as a single person and not having right. to worry too much about marriage in first corinthians 7 in right. the bible did you look down on unmarried folks who were adults and single because an ordinance that you would want to go through is marriage? Uh, yeah, yeah, because basically to achieve like the highest level of heaven, right, and, and the greatest form of, of exaltation, of, of salvation that God had to offer, marriage was part of that. Like you need to be married to get there. And this goes, and I, you know, this is kind of a tangent doctrinally here, but... Um, and that's because Mormonism teaches that God himself is married, that there is a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. Okay, so that is a, that's an eternal part of who God is and like that nature of who we are and can eternally be is, is part of that relationship. And who's mother God? Like right now, it, do you guys have a, you had a trinity, no? Or kind, they call it the Godhead. So the it's Godhead. heavenly father, Jesus, the son, and then the Holy the Spirit. The Holy Ghost yeah. or the Holy Spirit. Right. And where's mother God in that? So basically, they don't really talk about Heavenly Mother. And the reason why, at least what was explained to me, is because it's too sacred. Like, like God loves his wife so much, he doesn't want her name to be defiled like his name has been defiled. And you'll get to know her more on the other side. Sure, maybe. yeah. So you don't like pray to Heavenly Mother. You don't have any relationship or understanding of who, who she is, other than you know she is the counterpart to Heavenly Father. So yeah, so, so marriage is a considerably important thing in Mormon doctrine and even in their theology because if you're not married, like you can't achieve the highest level of heaven. And so actually another thing they do in the temple is vicarious marriages. They will actually marry people that are married or were married in, in, in life or sometimes people that aren't. They'll just take random people and, and, and you know, can marry them in order to give them a spouse so that they can you know, achieve exaltation. So yeah, so like very rarely, I mean, I, you would never hear a Mormon leader or anybody encourage a person to pursue singleness. And even like in the Christian church, I think it's, that's a topic that we're very ignorant about. First yeah. um, Corinthians seven, like Paul very clearly says, like, if you can remain single, like you can actually serve God in a greater capacity. I mean, that's basically kind of the summation of what he says. And, and I understand that, you know, as a, as a father and as somebody who's been married, it's like, yeah, I mean, I understand that there are worldly distractions to those things, but yet God uses us in our glory and his glory to, to, you know, bring forth the gospel to people in whatever state that we're in. Um, I know I have a dear sister in Christ who's 26 years old, who has come forward to our ministry and said, I feel the call to singleness. That's unusual, even in the Christian body, you know. And so, yeah, as a Mormon, it would just be unheard of. So Mormon women generally marry very young, and the Mormon men generally marry you know, pretty young after their missions, and their whole purpose is kind of to, to be homemakers and to bear children and, and, and that. So, so yeah, as a missionary, yeah, no, it's okay. I mean, those are important things I think are, are important for people to understand. But the lifestyle as a missionary, and this is something that, you know, I, I always like to emphasize because like when we as Christians see the Mormon missionaries, like my, the thing that I want to say to every person is please see them through the lens of love and compassion. It's a very challenging experience. 
the rules are extremely strict. They're somewhat different now. I went on a mission, you know, 18 years ago. They're a little bit uh, more relaxed now. But when I was a missionary, I mean, the only access you had to the Internet was at a public library once a week when you were emailing your immediate family. You, you couldn't surf the internet. You could not read books that were not part of the approved list. You couldn't read magazines, newspapers. You couldn't go see movies, like no, no recreational things. Um, you, you obviously weren't working. You didn't have a job. You couldn't have a girlfriend. Uh, and, and you had to go out you know, for these 8, 10, 12 hours a day and, and be rejected by people and be yelled at by people. and have, you know, I had glass bottles thrown at my head. I had people try to run me over with their cars. I had people swear at me. I had guns pulled on me and all these types of things. Um, you know, where you're just daily being rejected by people and, and even Christians telling you you're in a cult and you're going to hell and get away from me. We're not interested in anything you have to say. And, and, and you know, it's such a challenging experience and it is for a lot of young men and women. And so one thing that becomes very common um, amongst people who serve missions is depression, is homesickness, is people who, um, you know, you're away from your family, you're with a stranger, you're assigned this companion that you have to be with 24 hours a day. You don't get to choose this person. It's like being married they and not being able up. to choose your they, spouse. They tell you who. They pair you up okay. with whoever they want. So the overseer of the mission does that, and, and, you, and you're assigned to this area, and this is what you got to do. You guys do. live together. You live together. Like in an apartment or whatever. Yeah, and, and, and you have these expectations of how many people you have to talk to a day, and right, you have all these qualifications and, and, and the, the, these worthiness standards that, that you have to uphold, and, and you're missing your family, and you, you just feel hopeless. And it's a very challenging experience. And so I say that only because so often we see the Mormon missionaries Number one is like they're these like bulletproof robots that are just theologically trained. And it's like these are 18, 19, 20 year old kids who are away from their families, who are probably more scared of you than you are of them <laughs> um, and, and who need love. They need compassion. They need gentleness. They, they need respect and they need truth. And, and our response to them is get off my doorstep. I don't want to talk to you. And um, like seeing your ministry and your approach with for the gospel and you as a pastor, like your heart is, is love, right? And, and that's so evident in everything that you do. And uh, um, if you're f familiar with Nabil Qureshi, you probably are. Um, and, and the incredible life of service that he gave to the gospel and, you know, passed away from cancer. On his deathbed, one of his final videos was, he said, you know, I've obviously received a lot of criticism from Muslims and other people for basically you know, exposing that, that it was not the truth and that Christianity was the truth and Jesus was the way to salvation. And he said, you know, in the end, like, I want my ministry to be remembered that everything I did was through the lens of love. And like that has always stuck with me. And like for me as a minister of the gospel and being in ministry, like that everything that we do in Christ should be through the lens of love. Like, and that's not just you as a pastor. It's not just me in ministry. That is our calling in Christ, right? That is, that is Paul. Like, you can have uh, all knowledge and understand all mysteries, and you can have faith to move mountains. You can give up your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. You are just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And so one of the things that I encountered a lot as a Mormon missionary is like Christians who were just plain mean to me, like unkind to me, and didn't treat me with love. And like, how much... I remembered that, but not in a good way. And just saying to myself, like, if that's what Christianity is, why would I want to, why no would I want to be a part of it? And would, would it only further affirm that you thought that we would be 
heretics or not of the true faith. You're going, look how unloving these people oh, are. Oh, absolutely. They're hateful and angry. No, They're on the devil's team. No wonder they act like them. Yeah. These, guys, these are the enemy. Look at how they treat us. Would, would that be a reality for oh, you to sure. affirm? And we would see it as like, as an affirmation that we were the truth because it was like persecution complex, right? So we were victims, we were being persecuted. That was evidence that we were true, right? Jesus said, if you follow me, you are going to suffer. You will be persecuted, you will be hated. It's not a, it's not a maybe, right? Um, it's the opposite of what the prosperity gospel preaches and that's that following Christ means that you know things are going to be more difficult, that we're gonna be hated by the world. However, we take heart because Christ has overcome the world and in Christ, we too overcome the world. And so I was going through that. I was being hated. I was being yelled at. And I was like, yeah, it just, it just further confirmed to me that we, were, that we were the truth. Why else would Christians be so angry to us? Like, why else would they be so unkind to us unless we had the truth? And so I think that's a lesson that we all need to learn. Is, is, and, and it's not just Mormon missionaries. It's like belie- unbelievers in general. Like, we as Christians have a tendency to just see people through the lens of self-righteousness, right? Through the lens of judgment, and you're a heretic, and you're an unbeliever, and you're this, and you're that, and you're an occult, and whatever. And it's like, well, have you ever considered that those people need truth? And that maybe God has put them in your life because he wants you to share truth with them and to love them with the truth? And listen, like, being loving and being bold are not mutually exclusive. Like we can be, I consider myself a bold person when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to exposing the differences doctrinally between Mormonism and Christianity or any other thing. But I, you can do that in love. Like you can be gentle in the way that you correct your opponents. I mean, that's what we're commanded to do in scripture. Totally. That's what Paul, Paul told us to do. Says. So Peter told us to do, you know, and, and to, to be gentle and respectful in the way that, you know, we correct our opponents. And so... So here I was going about as a Mormon missionary, and uh, it was tough, but you know, I, I started to see fruit right, by Mormon missionary standards, which means that our ultimate goal was to baptize people. Baptizing them was not just a Christian ordinance, it meant confirming them as a member of Mormonism, right? And so that was a big thing for me, like becoming a Christian is like, when I get baptized, like I'm not being baptized as a member of a church. Like that baptism isn't to join a church. Baptism, you know, is part of this, this witness of my following of Jesus Christ, not of a man or an organization. But in Mormonism, it is exclusively like a baptism into the church. Yeah, and becoming a member of the church. So our goal was making members of the Mormon church, making converts to the church. And so I started to find success in doing that. You know, you start to find the things that work, the things that don't work. And actually you start to have fun with it. Like we used to play games about how many people were gonna reject us. And we had these funny like sayings that, um, you know, the more people rejected us, the, the, the hotter our wife was going to be after our mission, you know, or, or the more that we were suffering, um, you know, the more beautiful our wife was going to totally. be or stuff like that. So we just kind of have fun with it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Young guys. Because you're not going to, I realized very quickly, like, it's not going to get better. Like, like you're never going to all of a sudden just find a bunch of people that want to talk to you. So you just make the most of it. And so I started to really connect with people. I mean, genuinely, like, like my heart as a Mormon missionary was of the love that I knew and wanting them to have truth, to convert them to truth that I thought was going to save them. And so I really started to connect, connect with people, to make relationships with people, friendships, and I started to see people get baptized and you know, started to become successful as a missionary. And so this all led up to kind of the, the, the moment that, that really changed my life. And really, before we get there, because sure. that's the next step for sure, 
where are you taking them to get baptized? Is there a ward? Like I'm, I'm always fascinated by the process of yeah. how things work. So you're in a conversation. You, there's a breakthrough. You get there. You're like, all right, this person believes and, and they're going to do it. And you, do you say, hey, meet me this Sunday at yeah. this ward? Or because people, I think, drive around town, like even where we are here in Arizona, and I see Mormon churches, I would yeah. call them, or wards everywhere. And do they meet on Sunday? Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey, meet me on Sunday. We're going to schedule your baptism. And they like help me understand how yeah, all that works. Yeah, that's actually works. a really good question. Probably something I've never explained before. Um, yeah, so, so Mormonism is unique in that the way that their wards or, or chapels, right, their, their local congregations are established is actually by ge- geographical boundaries. So you can't be like, I want to go attend that congregation because I really like the pastor that's over there. It's like you live in these geographical boundaries, therefore you attend that particular ward. So everybody who's in your ward is assigned to you because you're part of, of, you know, that boundary. And so, yeah, so you would actually set a baptismal date. You'd say, and it, and it didn't, it wasn't necessarily on a Sunday. Usually it wasn't on a Sunday. It could be really any time. And so you set a baptismal date where their friends and their family and the ward members could come. And it's in the Mormon church. They have a baptismal font, right? So in one of the rooms, they have a baptismal font. And you go there and you have this kind of nice little ceremony. You, you sing hymns and you pray. And usually somebody like shares some, you know, thoughts. Uh, and then you go into the water and you perform the ordinance of baptism. And again, it's a very like everything in Mormonism is very structured, right? So even the person performing the baptism, they have to hold the priesthood, the Mormon priesthood. And only worthy males can hold the Mormon priesthood. So generally it was one of the missionaries that would baptize somebody, but you go in and you have to say the right words and you have to do the ordinance correctly. So they have to hold your hand a certain way. You put your arm in the air and, and you, you do the baptismal phrase and then you physically baptize them. You immerse them in water. And here's what's interesting, too, is every square inch of them has to be covered by water. If not, the baptism does not count. Like, because the ordinance wasn't performed properly. So I actually was at a baptism one time, and this, uh, this is actually a sad story. There's this, this woman who was a little overweight. She had health problems. She had heart problems. And she just couldn't, like, bend down right to get under. And, like, this little part of her head wasn't going under. And she had to get baptized, like, ten times. Because the bishop was sitting there, the, the local pastor, and he's watching. And there's actually people that he's their job is to over. watch to make wow. sure that every square inch of this person is covered by the water or else it doesn't count and she went through and all of a sudden it wasn't a magical you know spiritual experience for him it was this painful awkward thing where this poor lady was going under the water and coming up and just to show like that just how legalistic that mindset is and 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 how you know rigid they are about how these rules and ordinances need to be followed and performed and so yeah so you'd go and you do this thing and then that person's baptized and then the following Sunday, whatever the next Sunday was, they would then be confirmed. And that confirmation means that they would receive the gift, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then they too would be confirmed as a member of the church. And the evidence, so I come from more charismatic kind of Pentecostal, that background that can get a little wild. For me, before, the belief that I was baptized or had been right. filled with the Holy Ghost, received the gift of the Holy Ghost, was evidenced by tongues yeah. before. And I'm, I have not lost the thought. We're going to go <laughs> to your conversion here in a sec. But are there evidences, like how do you know you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost? Obviously the laying on of hands, but is there? do they have tongues in Mormonism? Do they have 
some sort of no, ecstatic? No, th- there would be no way to like qualify how you know. It's just that the ordinance has been done, you know, and so you just, it's done. Like you now have the gift of the, Holy, the, Ghost. Gift of the you, Holy Ghost. It's with you. Um, it's unique in that you can't have the gift of the Holy Ghost outside of Mormonism, and you can't have the gift of the Holy Ghost outside of that that procedure. That procedure. And what yeah. does it do in their mind? Like when we say in Christianity, I've been yeah. filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I've been baptized. We would say you've been baptized in the body of Christ. Or, I've been right. filled with the Holy Spirit means now I'm empowered in Christian service. I'm going to, you know, you bear fruit. Or your, you know, the empowerment, the power of the Spirit working through us and in us and all yeah. that. You have that. For you guys is... What are you, what are you going to do then? If you've got the Holy Ghost, is he going to help you change? Or I guess you keep all the rules. You're not, you don't want to, you don't. <laughs> yeah. What's happening there? Yeah, so I, th- I think the difference, so like they would say that Christians could have the influence of the Holy Spirit, but you can't have the indwelling of it, right? So, and I think the principal purpose of the indwelling or the gift of the Holy Ghost in Mormonism is that it guides you to do the right thing. So basically, like the Holy Ghost influences you to follow the commandments. Um, and when you're faced with temptation, when you're faced with, you know, basically any type of immorality or temptation in the flesh of the Holy Ghost, you, you turn to the Holy Ghost to give you that strength to do what's right. And, and then the other primary function of the Holy Ghost is to confirm truth. As we talked about previously, it, it, it gives you those feelings of confirmation. And so if you're dealing with something in your life or you're questioning a doctrine or you want to know if this is a direction you should go, the Holy Ghost is what testifies to you through you know, your, your feelings whether or not something is right or wrong. And is he an it or is he an equal member of the Godhead in Mormonism? No, because I mean, nobody's an equal member in the Godhead of Mormonism. So, so God, Heavenly Father, is the creator. I mean, he created Jesus in Mormon theology. So Jesus is not an eternal being. Okay, he's not eternal. So he he's is. subservient to the Father, and then the Holy Ghost essentially is sent out to do the will of the Father. Okay. Um, yeah. That's helpful yeah. to understand. Yeah. So it's, it's very different from how we as Christians would understand the triune nature of God. Um, it's a different understanding of who God is. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. And we are going to, you know, we have all those videos. We're going to answer a ton of those other questions, yeah. but I just have to ask <laughs> because it's so fascinating. Take us now to the start of your conversion. You feel like God rerouted you from yeah. Mexico City to Orlando. You're, you're, you guys are getting rejected left and right, but you're going to have prettier wives. Because, you know the whole deal. Where, where does the Lord start basically putting cracks in the dam yeah. and causing trouble, if you will, yeah. for your foundation in Mormonism. Yeah, and, and up to that point, I, I should clarify too, like I never had doubts about my faith. Like a lot of Mormons, you may meet, even Mormon missionaries, it's like they've gone through, well, I've questioned this, I've doubted this. Like I never went through that process. Mormons talk about having a shelf and you put sh- these things on your shelf that you question that you don't know about. How do I answer these? I mean, certainly Christians, the same thing, right? Apologetics things, like how do we how do we deal with certain things biblically? How do we deal with Noah's Ark? I'm putting that on my shelf, you know? And, and, and so, but I never had that. Like I never had doubts about it. I never questioned it. I never felt any part of Mormonism was not everything that it claimed to be. And so I say that only because I wasn't looking for anything. Like I, I had the truth. I knew that I had the truth. And I was confirming that through every you know, action that I was living as a, as a faithful Mormon. And so it was in June of 2004. It was a Sunday evening. It was raining outside. My Mormon mission companion and I were driving. And we see this church. 
that has a parking lot full of cars. Well, the last thing that you want to do when it's raining is go knock on doors. And we thought, you know what? Let's go check it out. Yeah. I mean, really, we're like, here's a church of people. They're Baptists. Uh, they're obviously not saved. They need Mormonism. They're all in one <laughs> spot, know? too. They're all in one spot. <laughs> we, can, we can get all of our, our contacts that we're supposed to have for the week. We can get them in all one in shot. one day. And so, I mean, really, it was like, it was a very impulsive thing. Like, we just saw it, and I said, should we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Like, we'd heard other missionaries of doing it. I had never done it up to that point. And so we walk in, and they're, you know, about to begin the Sunday evening service, and there's all these Christians there, and, and credit, and to the glory of God, like, these people were so loving. Like, they epitomized what we're supposed to be in Christ, to love others as Christ has loved us. And they, they showed us that. It wasn't like we walked in, everybody was staring, you know what I mean? Like, they did show us genuine love, like, hey, welcome, thanks for being here tonight, you know, take a seat, and people were shaking our hands and other things. They weren't affirming our theology and our beliefs. And I, I know people take it to the extreme, uh, you know, and, and, oh, well, you can't welcome them into your home or you can't, you know, they, they misinterpret, I think, what Scripture's trying to teach us there. And then they go and they just outright reject or they call them heretics in the spot, you know. So they weren't certainly affirming what we believe, but they were, they were loving us and welcoming us. And they're like, great, what an awesome thing. They're going to hear the truth of the Word of God. And so we go to the Sunday evening service and I thought, well, I mean, one of the things that we were taught as missionaries was to convert kings and rulers. And what they meant by that was like, if you convert somebody of influence, then they're going to influence the people um, that they have stewardship over. And so we saw that, well, pastor, right? A pastor is the steward over this congregation. Like if we can convert the pastor, then the pastor can probably influence the conversion of their congregants as well. That was kind of our, our mentality. And so we used to kind of approach people like that, thinking, well, if we can convert somebody with influence, then they can, you know, influence other people. And we'd heard these, like, I, you know, I don't know if they were just rumors or what, of stories of people converting pastors. I don't know if it really happened, but I think it was just a way to motivate us. And so <clears throat> our ultimate goal was let's meet the pastor. Let's, let's arrange a meeting with him, right? And so after the service, we meet the pastor, this guy named Alan Benson. He's in his like mid-30s, a pretty young guy. It, when I was 21, I thought he was old, but you know, I'm 37 now, so uh, I, I think he's young. <laughs> and so we meet him and we shake his hand. Again, like he just exuded love, kindness, gentleness to us. It wasn't, what are you doing here? It's not, let me tell you about how false your church is. How are we doing, guys? Like shake our hand, you know, just, just loving on us. And I said, Pastor, we're missionaries from the Mormon church, and we'd love to sit down and, and just talk to you and have a discussion about Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. And he just said, I'd love to do that. <laughs> you know? And it was like, it was so cool because he, he was just so excited. And I thought, well, I thought he was excited because like God was preparing him to be Mormon. And yeah. so that got me excited. I thought, wow, this guy's like, you know, he's this golden convert we used to call him, which is like people that the Holy Spirit had already prepared to receive the message of truth. And so I had no idea like why he was excited about meeting, meeting us. And, but thinking back, it's like, I'm excited that he was excited because I did meet a lot of Christians that like they didn't want that opportunity to talk to us or maybe they didn't feel equipped or, or whatever. And they just, you know, shut the door in our face. And he said, yeah, come back to my office Tuesday morning. Let's sit down and let's talk. One of the neat things that I learned several years later talking to this pastor was that he was currently doing a study on Mormonism. 
he hadn't studied Mormonism since Bible college. And, and there were things that had caused him to kind of go back into that. And so he was more maybe equipped in that moment than he would have been at other times. And so we came back to his office on a Tuesday morning and we sat down with him and we had a pretty long discussion. Um, ultimately, th there's two things about Pastor Benson's discussion that I always like to bring up. Number one is that he sat and he listened. And that's so hard for people to do, especially when we're talking to somebody that we believe to be wrong or that even we know to be wrong. So instead of like interjecting comments and points as we were sharing, he just, he allowed us basically the opportunity to share with him what the principal uh, pillars of Mormonism were, right? What are the basic doctrines of Mormonism? Go ahead. And I really, I, I respected that, you know, because I could tell that he respected us. It wasn't, all right, guys, sit down and listen. It was, okay, share with me what you believe and let's have, let's have a cordial dialogue about this. And so we went through, you know, the, the kind of basic things about Mormonism and, you know, course there's a natural works-based righteousness that comes forward when you when you present Mormonism <laughs> um, there's things that we believed were necessary that we had to do and to contribute in addition to what Jesus did on the cross for salvation I think that is really at the crux of Mormonism it's the crux of any works-based righteousness and that is no matter how much you believe Jesus's sacrifice on the cross contributes to your salvation if it is not 100 percent then you believe in a works-based righteousness. And so I never as a Mormon would have claimed that I could be saved outside of the work of Christ. I believe that the work of Christ is what saved me, but it wasn't only what saved me. And there is a huge difference. Yeah. And so we shared this with him and we kind of, you know, we're reading things. We're talking about the Book of Mormon, about Joseph Smith, about, you know, the restoration of the gospel and all these things. And I'm just like, I, I was a good communicator as a Mormon missionary. I, I, I felt like I had explained it well, I was emotional, I was passionate, and I thought, all right, like, I, I've done the best that I could to plant a seed of truth in this man's heart. And he looks at us, and he goes, guys, you are obviously passionate about what you believe, and you guys are very zealous for what you believe to be truth. And, um, and I think a lot of Mormons really are genuinely zealous, just like the Jews in the day of Paul, yeah. right, Romans 10, he says, my heart's desire for them is that they may be saved, and I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that was me as a Mormon. It was the Jews in the day of Paul. It's many people is I was sincerely zealous for God. It may be Roman Catholics, it may be Jehovah's Witnesses, it may be, even, it may be Muslims, it may be people who really genuinely, like I as a young Mormon man, wanted a relationship with God, but that zeal was misplaced. And so he said, look, as zealous as you are, the message that you're sharing is not the gospel of Christ. And he said it that plainly. And I just like... I didn't know what to say. Like, first of all, I wasn't expecting that response. I thought he was going to like, you know, I thought he was going to maybe say he enjoyed our message and all these other things. And he just flat out said, the, the gospel that you're preaching is not the true gospel that's revealed in Scripture. And it was a, such a hard thing for me to hear, but it was a necessary thing for him to say. And, and, and I appreciate that 
you know, love comes in many forms, and, and the greatest form of love is truth. And sometimes we have to s- preach the truth when it's uncomfortable to do so, and sometimes the greatest form of love that we can show a non-believer is by sharing with them the truth that we know is going to offend them. And that's a hard thing to do, but without it, that person may be lost. And so when he said that, I, I just like, I felt like a ton of bricks had fallen on my heart because number one, I was like, this is a lost cause. Like this guy's not going to get converted. Let's just get out of here. Um, but ironically, I remember thinking very consciously, I need to show him the same respect that he showed me. And so that's why when we encourage people in their evangelistic efforts with Mormons or really anybody, like you have to be respectful in that dialogue and like you have to listen and you have to ask questions and if you can show them respect more times than not, they're going to feel an obligation to reciprocate that respect. And that's how I felt as a Mormon missionary. And so there are a plethora of ways that you can evangelize a Mormon when it comes to doctrine, theology, history, archaeology, all these things, right? My approach is based on Pastor Benson's approach. And that's that he opened up the Word of God and he shared the gospel. Plain, simple, unadulterated, the truth of the salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ and only through the person and the work of Christ alone. And it's like, well, that's just so simple. But for a Mormon and for somebody who grew up my entire life following a false gospel, I had never heard what I heard that day from that Christian pastor. And I'm eternally grateful to him and to God for him that he saw these young, brash, arrogant, 19-year-old Mormon missionaries through the lens of love, right? Just like we talked about, with enough love to say, you're worth my time and you're worth the truth. And I've thought about that so much because there's, there's so many times when God puts somebody in my life, my initial response is, it's an inconvenience, mm-hmm. right? Why bother? What's the point? Um, and I think of, that was me 18 years ago, showing up at a Baptist pastor's church. He could have easily said, why bother? What's the point? You know? And so I sat there and I'm listening to this man communicate the gospel, but it's not the gospel that I knew, and it's not the gospel that I was proclaiming, and it's not the gospel that I'd heard my entire life. It was much simpler, and it was much clearer. And so it was simply the sufficiency of the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary to cleanse me of my sin and to make me right with God, that my salvation was not contingent upon my goodness, my righteousness, my works, my efforts, my merits. It wasn't about the things that I was doing for God. It was about what God was doing for me in Christ. And although that sounds simple, it it was mind-blowing for me as a young man because I, I never would have considered that God saved me simply and solely through the work of Christ. I mean, of course I believed in Jesus and his shed blood, and I believe he died on the cross and and rose from the grave on the third day and all those things, and that atonement is what saved me. But I also believed that I had to do my part, that I had to contribute to that, that God's grace was only given to me if I had done the best that I could do and expended my best efforts. And so I'm sitting there hearing him proclaim this gospel that God in his love sent Jesus to step in my place is my substitute and to go up on the cross and to pay the full measure 
of my debt. Not part of it, not 99.9% of it, but to satisfy in full measure the debt that I owe to God because of my sin. And that he had satisfied the demands of God's law that stood against me. And that he had accomplished the work that that saves humanity, that, that brings justification and life to all men. And that I could be saved and have the guarantee of my salvation, the forgiveness of my sins, and the, and the assurance of my right standing with God through my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I remember, you know, it wasn't just him, you know, bloviating. It was, it was him opening up the Word of God and the power of God's Word. And I remember him reading like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But I didn't know that passage as a Mormon. That was not something that was emphasized. And then he's you know, sharing uh, Titus 3, 4, and 5, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And, and, and Romans 3, and, and he's going to John 6 and all these things, and it's like he's just unfolding the goodness and the grace of God in Christ, that it was so much greater than anything that I had ever fathomed up to that point in my life. And it was so much greater than anything that I had ever given God credit for. God wasn't saying, Jesus died for you, now be good enough. It was turn and face Christ and trust Him and believe that what He did for you is enough to save you and is the only thing that can save you. And I remember Pastor Benson just lovingly pleading with me to to take hold of the salvation that God was offering me in Christ and to lay aside my own self-righteousness and my works and my goodness and just turn and repent and change my mind and trust that Jesus Christ did for me what I would never be able to do for myself. And that is what the gospel is. I mean, that is the beauty of what Christ did for us. And to tell us die, right? It is finished. It means paid in full. There is no work that we can add to Christ. It's blasphemous to think that we can contribute to something that is perfect and complete. And the work of Christ is perfect and complete. And, and, and we know that. And it's all through Scripture and, and Hebrews 7 through 10. If you want to know about the supremacy and the sufficiency of what Jesus did, just go to the Word of God. And so as I'm hearing this, there was a strange thing happening in my heart and in my mind. And it was wonder and awe because this is not the God that I know and this is not the gospel that I know. And this is in a way greater. Like it was like so amazing to consider that God's love was so much greater than what I had ever believed or understood because that's what I had been pining for my entire life. And that the breadth of his love was was so deep and so vast and so wide that Jesus did everything necessary for me to be saved through his work on the cross. But then at the same time, my Mormon programming was kicking in and I'm going, well, this is just easy believism. This is cheap grace. This is like Christians that just want to believe that all they have to do is just say Jesus and then they can go off and do whatever they want. Too easy. It was too simple. Um, but the irony of the gospel is that it becomes a stumbling block because of its simplicity. And this isn't just a problem with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholics or works-based, you know, righteousness, even in the Christian church. Like we, we complicate the simplicity of the message of the gospel. And one thing I love about being a dad, and, and you've probably experienced this yourself when my kids were, you know, younger, 
is that they could communicate and express the gospel in such a simple way. I'm a sinner. The wages of my sin is death. God loves me. He sent Jesus to die for me. If I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. You know, and it's like, it's so beautiful and it's so simple. And so I remember saying, I remember I said to Pastor Benzel, it's like, okay, if this is the way that we're saved by grace through faith alone, everybody's going to get saved. Like, like who in their right mind is going to reject the gospel if that's really the way that we're saved? And so I ended up rejecting the gospel myself because I just couldn't comprehend the simplicity of the message. And, and I think that a lot of people do that. And, uh, and a lot of religious people do that. You know, but Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so the, there's this thing about this, this humility and this childlike faith in which we approach God and his word and truth and, and allow God through his word to fill our cup and to, and to reveal to us and to open our eyes. And now I didn't have that childlike faith at that point. I was zealous for God, but my zeal was, you know, directed toward God through my works. And so I really... I saw the, the kind of evangelical gospel message. I saw it as foolishness, honestly. I, I, and, and I remember, like, we as Mormon missionaries, this is horrible, but we used to kind of mock it. Like, like, honestly, like, we used to mock the idea of salvation by grace alone. We used to kind of mock Christians and, and how they just were taking the easy way out. Um, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross, it's foolishness, foolishness to the right? To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so that is who I was, and that's who I am. It's how I see the cross, as foolishness or as the power of God. But now I see it as the power of God because I've been saved by that which I once saw as foolishness. And so um, I really like... In my zeal, I felt, first of all, I couldn't really defend Mormonism through the Bible because I didn't know the Bible well enough. And this pastor was very well equipped in the Word of God. And so I, I couldn't apologetically defend my faith based on all the scriptures that he just read. And so really the only thing I could do is kind of share my testimony, tell him that what I believed I knew was true because of the power of the Holy Spirit had witnessed it to me. And, uh, and, and I started to kind of like go through the Book of Mormon and I was sharing verses with him and we had a little bit of a back and forth. I was angry. And I want to clarify that my anger was not a result of, of him in the, in the manner in which he shared truth. It's because of the truth that was shared, right? And there's a big difference. Like, don't, uh, don't deliberately offend people, but people are going to be offended. And, and, and that's okay. But I'm not going to deliberately go up to somebody and do or say something that I know is going to offend them or, or, or touch on something that I know is, is sacred to them that's going to deliberately put up you know, a barrier between me and, and them and the opportunity I have to share the gospel with them. So Pastor Benson was nothing but loving, kind, respectful, gentle. But man, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I know what that feels like to just have that stabbed, you know, right through my very core. And so I, I just, I felt like this great offense had been levied toward me. And I felt like, you know, I was the defender of truth and of Joseph Smith and that God had, you know, called me there to defend the, the truth of his kingdom to this wicked, you know, false teacher. And I just kind of started to lay it a little bit. And I came to this passage in the Book of Mormon that basically said, like, if he didn't accept the Book of Mormon as the word of God, then, then he would be judged, you know, in the final day. And, and, and that was like, 
You were how going bold there. I was, yeah. You're going all the way. And uh, and and I just I, I was so conflicted. And um, I remember just when I was leaving his office. I don't really remember how everything ended, but I remember leaving his office. And the last thing that he said to me was, he said, "Look, like you don't have to trust me. You don't have to take my word for anything that I've said here today." And I thought about that. And I'm like, what a cool thing for a Christian to say, right? Because when I go to somebody with the gospel, I'm not saying believe me. I'm not saying trust me, you know? And that's the difference between that and Mormonism, right? It's, I'm not telling you to trust in man. Just go to the source. And so he said, look, just I, I challenge you. Like I, in your zeal, just go to the Bible. Read the Word of God. And, and I think he specifically pointed me to the New Testament, right? So that I go to, you know, the, the, the fulfillment of all things in Christ. And, and he said, just read the Bible like a child. And, and he put that specific phrase on there, which I didn't understand it at the time. Um, and he said, I promise you, if you do that, God will, he'll open your eyes and you're going to see that the gospel that you now know and believe is not the gospel that's revealed in, in, in scripture. And of course, even that challenge alone just made me more upset and uh, frustrated. And I went back and I remember just kind of having this internal debate as to how I wanted to respond to this. Because number one, I felt, well, I'm not biblically equipped to defend Mormonism against evangelical Christians, right? So if I'm going to spend the next, this is about four months into my two-year mission. So if I'm going to spend the next, you know, 20 months or so battling these evangelical Christians, I should probably know the Bible better. Um, and, and, I, and I really believe that if I read the Bible, it was just going to further confirm and solidify the Mormon doctrines that I knew to be true. So I, I basically said, all right, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the New Testament from beginning to end for the first time in my life. I'd never done that. And I've received criticism from Mormons say, oh, well, you weren't really... You know, I read a lot of the Bible, but you also have to understand that in Mormonism, the Bible was not the highest scripture. The Book of Mormon was, and it actually claims in the Book of Mormon to be the most correct book on earth and that a man will get closer to God through it than any other book. Well, as a young man whose whole heart and passion and desire growing up was to be close to God, naturally, what was I going to read? Yeah. So I went to the Book of Mormon and I had read it, I think, six or seven times, but I never read the Bible and it's... It, and it, even the New Testament in total, I'd read the Gospels. Though. Again, I really loved the life ministry of Jesus, and so I'd read the Gospels several times. But we, were ne like, we never emphasized the epistles of Paul in the Mormon church, like ever. It was never something that was a, a, a very solid focus in Sunday school, you know, in seminary, you know, those, any of those other things. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it because it's going to prove Mormonism true and it's going to equip me to be able to use the Bible against evangelical Christians. <laughs> so the irony was that I wasn't humble. I wasn't childlike. You know, I, was, I wasn't seeking God outside of where and how I already knew him. And here is the goodness and the grace of God. That's that he pursues us when we're not seeking and so here I was, this dumb, blind sheep, far in the mountains, without even knowing that I was lost. That's who I was before I got saved. I didn't know that I was blind when I was blind. And so I start this process, and I sit down in Mormonism. We exclusively use the King James Bible. Okay. So I open up to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah. And I just start to read. 
I have no expectation that anything in my life is going to change. I had no expectation that I was going to see something or that something was going to be revealed to me that I did not already know. I just thought it was going to confirm what I already believed. But to also take in mind, there's that part of me that still had this void. And it was still there. And as good as a missionary as I was, as successful as I was, there was still something missing in my life, and I knew that. And so I'm reading the Bible, and I'm reading through the Gospels, and I just like, I started to do it during my study time, my my allocated study time in the morning. And I kind of start to dismiss my Book of Mormon study time, and I'm like reading the, the New Testament more every day. And then I'm sitting down at the lunch table, and I'm eating my Fruity Pebbles, and, you know, and I'm reading the New Testament, and I'm reading it at dinner, and I'm reading it at nighttime, and, like, it starts to consume me. And I start to read, like, what it's adding up to, like, several hours a day. And so I read the New Testament all the way through, and I get to the end of Revelation, and the only thing that I can think to do is I want to do it again. Like, I just wanted more. It was like, the only thing I can compare it to is like being thirsty. And then you start to drink water and you realize how thirsty you are and you just want more. So, so I'm tasting of something that I didn't fully understand. God is working in my heart in a way that I didn't fully understand and I couldn't verbalize, but I knew something was happening. Like God was doing something internally simply through reading the Bible. I, I, it wasn't like I was understanding doctrine yet. I wasn't fully understanding the theological differences of Mormonism and Christianity, but God was beginning to pour his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. He's beginning to pour truth into my heart. And so every time that I'm reading through, like something different is kind of jumping out at me and, 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 and coming out of the, the, the pages of God's word. And I, like John 6, for example, and, and, and you know, Jesus says, what should we be doing? Or the disciples say, what should we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus, like, it's like softball, man, hit it out of the park, list, bucket list, all the things that we have to do, the laundry list of things that we need to do to be saved. And he says, and this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so I start to read things like that. And I'm reading Galatians, you know. Yeah, what was it like going through all these statements that works, a man is not is a man is justified apart from works. Yeah. Like, like you're running into these, or when you go to second, or compared to like second Nephi right. in the Book of Mormon maybe, and you know, Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, and it's not as a result of works. Then, yeah. So you have the, the double negatives. And then in the Book of Mormon, maybe a, a clear passage that some are familiar with is for you're saved by grace through faith after all you can do. Yeah, yeah. Are you noticing that at that point? Or you're kind of like, So, like different things are beginning to jump out at me at different times. I'm not putting all the pieces of the puzzle together yet. But yeah, like, so I'm going through Galatians, and it's a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm reading, uh, you know, Ephesians um, chapter 2 or, 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 or Romans chapter 3 or Romans chapter 6 or Romans 4, uh, you know, that... Uh, the, the wages, uh, you know, that um, 
the things that we're doing that are counted as a gift and not as our due, but to yeah. him who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, like his faith is counted as righteousness. So I'm not, they're not all popping out at me at the same time. It was like God was just kind of slowly opening my eyes to different things at different times. And but you're fascinated. You just want more. I'm starting to see things. I'm, I just want more. I think more than anything, more than like a theological or a doctrinal thing, it was like the main thing was like kind of the underpinning of everything was like God's love. Like, like God's love in Christ and the revelation of Christ was more than what I understood. I mean, that, that is what the gospel is, right? It is the revelation of God's love in Christ. And Christ is the revelation of God's love in the flesh. And, and that he would, you, you know, become lower than the angels of heaven, that he would submit to that, that, that he would be beaten and bruised and, and, and go up on the cross and offer his own life and have a crown of thorns put on his head and, and to be mocked by his own creation and to do that in order to save the very people that, that were condemning him like that. That is the greatest love that the universe can ever know. It is the perfect agape love of God. And so I'm starting to know that and, it, and it's starting to affect my life like the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm saying. And, and it's, it's beginning to develop a genuine love in my heart, like to love others and to serve others. And, and, and to, you know, it wasn't like this conscious thing. It was just this, this subconscious pouring of truth into my heart that began to change my actions. But that's what the Word of God does, right? And that's the whole thing, like grace and works. And, and in Mormonism, it's like, it was like, that's what grace does. Like, that's the result of what God does in our lives is that the gospel changes us. It transforms us. We, we are no longer the old sinful flesh, fleshy people. We, we become new creations in Christ. The old passes away, the new has come. And so, you know, although I was not born again yet, yet I was like working out my salvation, not working for, but working out my salvation of fear and trembling. And I was going through the process of having my eyes fully open. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And, and, and as I think about the Mormon people and I think about where I once was, it, it is a real spiritual blindness. And it's a very tangible thing that, that blinds people from truth. And so I, I was blind. And so God was slowly removing that blindness. And like I talk about like the water and Paul, Paul mentioned that the Ephesians like the washing of the water, the word of God. So it was like, I had been blind my whole life and this Christian pastor almost like put mud in my eyes. <laughs> and so God then through his word began to rinse the mud away through the power of the word of God. And so just like the blind man in John chapter nine, like I, I, I could see for the first time in my life. And my testimony was like, although I once blind, I, I can now see. Like that is every Christian's testimony <laughs> totally that is. has ever been saved. <laughs> And so I'm going through this process, and it very was much a process. So from the time that I began reading the New Testament to the end of my mission was about 20 months. And I ended up continually going back and forth and reading the New Testament, and I did so 12 times in total. Like I was at the end of my 12th time by the time that my mission ended. And it took all of those 12 times for the message of the gospel to fully permeate my blindness, right? For the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ to, to be seen fully and, and for me to know who Jesus Christ was. But it was just verse after verse and scripture after scripture of God showing me that, you know, it wasn't about me and it wasn't about what I could do for him. And it was never about me being good enough for him. It was about me trusting in what Christ had done for me, that Jesus's work was perfect. It was complete. It was all sufficient to cleanse me of my sin. And, and that only through his work could I be reconciled to God. And, and so all these scriptures that to me still, you know, I have in my heart and in my mind because, you know, God, 
use them at that time to open my eyes to, to the truth. And so even though we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And it's like, well, that's incredible. I remember 1 John 2. That, that was, has always been one of my favorite books because of the impact it made on my life as a Mormon missionary, in particular like 1 John 4, uh, where the apostle says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And then he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent Him to be the propitiation for our sins. And so I think it was, for me, it was just a simple understanding. It was a complex process, but it all boiled down to the simplicity of, did I trust Christ alone or not? And that's the question for every human being that has ever lived, and for anybody who's ever going to watch this video, is, is what Christ did all sufficient for you or not? And the most important question that you can ever have is, do you trust Jesus? Because that is the only thing that affects eternity is you either do or you don't. And there is no in-between. I thought I trusted Jesus, but if Jesus is not all that you trust in, then you don't trust him. And so I realized that Jesus was no longer part of what I needed to be saved. Jesus alone was what, what, what saved me. And so here I am, I'm going through this process, but again, I still don't fully see that it's drawing me outside of Mormonism. Like I'm still trying to see things within the box of, right, the church. But I realize that like, I'm no longer out there teaching people about Mormon doctrine. I'm like knocking on people's doors. So you weren't trying to convert, that was gonna be one of my yeah. questions. What, you're reading the Bible 12 times. Are you, are you, out there still trying to convert or do you kind of go into this hole and what's your roommate? I'm, I'm thinking about your roommate. I'm like, yeah. what's he doing? Well, so throughout your mission, you have your, your mission companion changes, right? Okay. So you're together six weeks, maybe three months, whatever. So I'm with different people. So they're kind of all observing different phases oh my of goodness. my transformation. But yeah, so it was like it, my approach to missionary work changed, right? It started to funnel the longer that I read the Word of God, and, and it was less about Mormonism and more about Christ and His Word. And it really wasn't until I got to the very end of my mission that I realized, like, it, it was no longer about Mormonism at all. And so the, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back for me theologically um, and this was necessary for me because I'd read the Bible so many times. I had had all this. I, I knew the love of God. I knew the sufficiency of Christ, but I still didn't understand how that fit within the construct of my religion. Well, I'm sitting there one day and I'm reading through Hebrews chapter 7. This is my 12th time reading the Bible, my 12th time in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews can be a difficult book to understand if you don't under, like, understand the background and for me, I, I just like, God just had not fully removed the veil, I guess is the best way to say it. So I get to Hebrews chapter 7, it's talking about the Melchizedek priesthood. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Because in Mormonism, we claimed the Melchizedek priesthood. And I'm reading Hebrews 7, I'm going, this seems like it's pretty exclusive to Christ. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't know, like it, it just something like stirred in me, like it bothered me. Like I read that chapter and I'm like, this bothers me for some reason. And then I get into chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And without going through all the details of what every one of those chapters say, and I encourage people watching this video, just go read Hebrews 7 through 10 with the understanding 
of Mormonism or any types of works-based religion, of course, there being written to the Hebrews and the understanding of Christ as the fulfillment of the old law. And basically, the summation of those four chapters is Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. So Jesus is the only high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' offering of himself is the once-for-all offering that he did what no previous animal sacrifice could ever, ever do, that the blood of bulls and goats could never cleanse us from our sin. And what Christ did on the cross and the blood that he shed was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And only through what he did could mankind be reconciled to God. And it was all sufficient. And it happened once. And there was one act of righteousness that brings life and justification to all men. That he was the fulfillment of the temple. That all of the purpose of the temple and all of the rituals of the temple, that they were all symbolic of Christ and they were all fulfilled in the person of Christ. And then now, actually symbolically, we, as the body of Christ, have become the temple of God, individually and collectively, because we then house the Holy Spirit that previously could only be accessed once a year through the Holy of Holies by the high priest. And so I'm reading all this, and, and this is what I walk away understanding. Jesus fulfilled the prophets, he fulfilled the priesthood, he fulfilled the roles of the priesthood. He fulfilled the temples. And he fulfilled all of the ordinances of the old law. Well, you know what that means as a Mormon. Totally. <laughs> all of those things were foundational to my faith. The temples and the ordinances and the priesthood and the high priests and the prophets and all these things upon which I had built my entire life and my theological understanding of how I knew God and how I got to God, Jesus was the fulfillment of every aspect and every facet of the old law. Therefore, Jesus is all sufficient. So like our ministry, we have a slogan, and that's that Jesus is enough. Okay, that is the three-word summation, essentially, of the entire book of Hebrews and really of all of Scripture. And that is that Christ is, is, is sufficient, that, that he is enough to save us and that he did everything that is necessary for us to be right with God through what he did on the cross of Calvary. And this unique, incredible position of being both the high priest and the offering, <laughs> this high priest who lives eternally, that, that he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way, you know, has, has gone through the very things that we've gone through. He's been tempted and suffered for us and that he eternally sits at the right hand of God and mediates our cause with the Father and we can now boldly approach the throne of God's grace because of Jesus Christ and that he tore the veil of the temple and that all those things that used to be in our way as mankind of having a relationship with God that we now have free access to God through the finished work of Christ and it just it simultaneously scared me to death while bringing me the greatest feeling of joy to know that Jesus was the solution all along, that like he was the perpetual, he was the satisfaction to my perpetual, you know, void that I had lived with my entire life and that I, I didn't need all those other things. And so I had a revelation, Jesus is all I need, therefore the Mormon church is not what I believed it to be. It, it is built on a false foundation, and, and it was built on a false gospel. Man, I, that's a scary thing. And for people watching this video who have either gone through that or maybe are going through that and maybe one day will go through that, it is a traumatic 
revelation to understand that everything upon which you built your faith is not what you believed it to be. But the amazing thing about how God transitioned me was I didn't have this falling out and then had to rebuild everything. God had been, been rebuilding the foundation the entire time. I've been re reading the Bible 12 times. I've been reading it for 12 months consecutively and God had rebuilt the entire uh, foundation of my faith upon that solid, unshakable rock of Christ. So that when the living waters came and it washed away the sands of man-made religion, that there was that foundation there waiting for me. And so now I was like, well, what in the world? And so by the grace of God, it was within that day and the next day that I, I came to a true and full understanding of Jesus Christ and, and of the magnitude and the gravity of what he did for me. And I trusted him truly for the first time in my life. And I was born again through the Spirit. And I was raised into newness of life. And if anyone is in Christ, as we said, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And I was, I was crucified with Christ. And, and here's a little cool side note about this whole experience is when you go on a Mormon mission, one of the things that they do traditionally is in your home ward, your congregation, they make this little plaque and it has your picture on it and you got your white shirt and tie on and, and it has the location of where you're serving a mission and you choose a theme verse for your mission, yeah. okay? Well, most verses are from the Book of Mormon. They're from the Doctrine and Covenants, right? They're about missionary work or, you know, something that has more... Um, specificity to Mormonism What did itself. you do? <laughs> so the verse that I chose was Galatians 2.20. And what Galatians 2.20 says is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I didn't understand what that verse meant when I chose it, but what was cool about the providence and the sovereignty of God is like, I would end up living out that very verse over the course of my two-year mission. And it was the theme verse of my mission. It is the theme verse in a lot of ways of my life. And so I was crucified with Christ and it was no longer I who lived and here I was and like everything made sense. God fully opened my eyes, but my Mormon name tag is on. I've got my white shirt, I've got my tie on. Like I'm still a Mormon missionary. And you were asking about my companion and these other things. It's like when you begin to bear fruit for God, like that is the natural result of being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, right? It's not you being a good person. It's not you during, doing good works. It's not you like, you know, proving your righteousness to God. It's, it's evidence of you being attached to the true vine, John 15. Well, naturally, I'd begun, even though I wasn't fully born again, I mean, I was beginning to like bear fruit of what God was doing in my life. And like people were noticing it. And there was like no doubt that something was changing in my life as a Mormon mission. I was knocking on doors and telling people about Christ and about his word and pointing them to the Bible and like completely omitting Mormonism. I was no longer reading the Book of Mormon. I was no longer studying, you know, Mormon scriptures and those other things. And, and certainly my companions began to take notice. And actually had a, my very last companion or one of my last companions, when I had that revelation in, in Hebrews, I, I, I was talking to him and I said, I was reading the Bible and like, I think that like the purpose of the temples, that that was fulfilled in Christ and like, we don't need temples anymore. And I said a few things to him and like he, he went in his room and shut his door. He didn't come out for like four hours. And like, we never, like, I didn't have any theological talks with him after that. You know, was it was just like, 
Well, I think that something was working in his heart even. Like he was afraid in the same way I was afraid. Like when you have to face the reality of truth and truth conflicts with something that you hold dear, whether it's theology, whether it's doctrine, whether it's a lifestyle, and you have to face that reality, you have two choices. You either face it and you embrace truth or you run from it, right? Truth is not subjective. There is truth, and that truth is found in the Word of God, and it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what I think, it matters what the Word of God says. And so here I am, a born-again Mormon missionary. (laughs) And so we were talking earlier about prayer, right? So my prayer is, what in the world do I do now, God? Like, I fully realize that Mormonism is false. Like, and I now know that. I had had inklings of it. I had seen things that conflicted with what I believe, but now... The veil is removed. I, I know that it's, it's not true anymore. I can't go out. I can't represent this religion anymore. In fact, um, I felt this huge burden of guilt, right? That, that I had been going out just like Saul of Tarsus, you know? Like I, I was fighting against the very God that I claimed to love and serve unknowingly. Um, and yet God in his mercy saw fit to love me and redeem me and forgive me. And so... I said, God, how do I come forward? And, and I was like, I can't finish. I had three weeks of my mission, like two years, three weeks. But for me, those three weeks felt they were like a decade. I was like, I can't. I, there's no way I can do this for three more weeks. Like, God, you, you've got to help me figure this thing out. Well, so here was the answer to my prayer. Two days later, it was this, this meeting. It's called, a, uh, it's called a zone conference. And what that means is a bunch of missionaries get together and the overseer of the mission comes and he gives insight, he gives wisdom, he kind of gives a sermon and he motivates you and, and you do these trainings and, and, and kind of these equipping exercises. And a part of this zone conference is that the missionaries that are in their last part of their mission, their last six weeks, and I was, is that you get up and you share kind of this farewell testimony. <laughs> so you're supposed to get up there and share kind of like what you've learned, right? A summation of what you've learned and share your testimony in the five pillars of Mormonism. And the, really the reason for this is that it helps motivate the younger missionaries, the missionaries that are brand new to the field. Like, hey, after two, I know it's tough, it's difficult, but after two years, like here I am and I'm this great, strong missionary. And... Um, and so I'm supposed to get up there and share Joseph Smith is a true prophet, the Book of Mormon is true, the Mormon Church is true, you know, all that stuff. And of course, I no longer have a testimony of four of the five pillars of Mormonism. My testimony is now built on Jesus Christ. And I remember just I'm sitting in the pews, like it's waiting for my turn, knowing that this is coming. And I'm just praying to God for strength um, because I knew that like I, I didn't even know what I was going to say I just knew that like I, I had to say something and I, and, I, and I couldn't and I didn't want to deny what God had, had done in my life like I wanted to witness of Christ and so I, I, I just asked God for wisdom and clarity and, and that he would give me a mouth to you know share truth to these people um, and we know that the grace of God is sufficient for us you know that, that his powers made perfect in our weakness and that, that anything that we do in the flesh is because of the grace of God over us, not because of ourselves. And that was a lesson I learned a long time ago. And so I got up there and I said, the one thing that I've learned throughout the course of my mission is that Christ, like he is the only thing that I need. 
Like that, that I don't need anything or anyone other than Jesus to be saved and that I, I am saved by his grace and not by my works, not by my righteousness, not by going to the temple, not by anything that I can expend, but by trusting in Jesus alone. And the other thing that I shared for the first time in my life, I was able to say like, I know that I'm right with God. Like I know that my sins are forgiven. And coming from the background of Mormonism in that constant burden and uncertainty that was on my shoulders, that's the greatest freedom that you can ever know is knowing that Christ bore in his body our sins on the tree and that he took that for me, that I didn't have to carry that weight, um, but that Jesus had washed that sin away through the power of his blood. And to be able to say like, I know, like I know I'm going to heaven. And like, ironically as a Mormon, I thought that it was arrogant when Christians would say that like if they died, they knew they were going to heaven. Yeah, like, well, that, that's arrogance, you know? And I thought it was humble to say, well, I don't know, I, I, I hope so. Because that was generally what my response would have been and what more, most Mormons' response would have been was, I hope I've done enough. And in fact, it's the opposite. Because if you hope you've done enough, then you're putting some hope in yourself, right? I mean, Matthew 7, that many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done mighty, many mighty works and miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's because some of their hope was in themselves. And so it was this awesome thing. And, and I love John 8 where Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so I had found freedom in Christ that I had been searching for my entire life. And so here's what's amazing about God is I had this, this, this inherent desire my whole life to be in a relationship with God, to find forgiveness, to find grace, to find favor, all those things. And guess what? It was there in Christ all along. And it wasn't something unique or special to me that that's what God did. And, and that's what he was offering through Jesus Christ. It's not because I was some special person. It's not even because David was some special person. David was a, a picture and a type of Israel. And, and then the love that God would show in Christ, that somebody that doesn't deserve it is going to be given his unmerited favor. And what greater example than the sinful wretch like David? And so here I was. I was like, man, I'm just like David, the sinful wretch who has the unmerited favor of God and the forgiveness of God because of Jesus Christ. And so I shared that testimony my leader was there, and here's like a little funny side story. So, like, as I mentioned before, there's like five pillars of a proper testimony, okay? Well, before I shared my testimony, before the, the departing missionary shared their testimonies, the president gave a sermon on the pillars of a true testimony. And I think he knew what was coming. <laughs> and he literally got up there, and he went through the five pillars. And he said that if you are not built on... All five pillars of this true testimony, you are not built on a solid foundation. And he said, and look me directly in the eye, and he said, faith in Jesus alone is not sufficient. Wow. Because I think he knew. There were inklings maybe of conversations. Oh, yeah. We'd had some conversations. He had heard even testimonies leading up to that. And so when I got up there, it was even more of a shock factor because I omitted everything but my testimony of Christ. So then after I go down, I sit down and he's kind of stared at me. He turns to one of the other missionaries, hands him a piece of paper. And then that missionary goes up, shares his testimony and deliberately goes through Five. The, four, the four pillars of testimony and never bear, bore witness of Christ. Wow. So this incredible moment 
and I'm there. I don't know. I'm, I still, I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen in my life. My mom's this BYU professor. My dad's a high priest. Like my brothers are returned missionaries. My life is, is you know, I'm, I'm a student at BYU previous to my mission. Like all this stuff. My whole identity as a human was right, rooted in my identity religiously. And so I couldn't separate the two. And so I go back home. And I'm just praying, 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 God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So the next day, I get a phone call, or maybe it was two days later, and it was my leader, right? The one who had given that sermon about a proper testimony. And he said, we need to, we need to talk. And there was no question in my mind why he wanted to talk. And I knew that the jig was up. And so I had two choices. Number one, I could basically fold. I could tell him that I believed in the Mormon church and placate him, placate my religious leadership and not face the consequences. Or um, I could be forthright about what God had done in my life and potentially lose the only life that I'd ever known and loved. And um, I would be lying if I said I, 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 I you know, considered those options very thoroughly for several hours leading up to this meeting and praying for strength and, and even thinking, okay, is there a way that I can kind of say the right things without denying Jesus, but, you know, without really incriminating myself. And I'm reading the, the Word of God because that was and is, I mean, that is my source of, of, of the bread of life, you know, of Christ and, and, and partaking in that flesh daily and, and, and finding truth and, and, and answers and I'm reading in Matthew 16, and it's Jesus' call to discipleship, right? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me and lose your life so that you can find it. And he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And I tell you, just the, the conviction that I felt in that moment of recognizing that, like, I was trying to save my soul. I was trying to save well, I was trying to save my earthly life and save my soul simultaneously, not realizing that, that I couldn't. Like, I couldn't gain what the world had to offer and still take hold of eternal life. Um, and I, I realized that God was calling me to take up my cross. Like, that, that everything that I knew and loved in the flesh, that those things didn't matter compared to what I had found in Jesus. And so... I, I, I kind of had this epiphany in that moment, and God just reminded me through the Holy Spirit what I had been reading for two years, and that was that Jesus was everything, that He was the only thing that mattered, and that if I had Him, then, then I didn't need anything else, and that if, if every worldly accolade and every worldly comfort that I had ever known, that if those things were stripped away, that if I had my relationship with, with God through Christ, that that was enough for me. And that is our hope as Christians. It's not that accepting Jesus means that you get all these good things in the world. It means it doesn't matter what you lose in the world because those things pale in comparison, as Paul said, to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And, and he's like, man, I, I consider those things as rubbish, as garbage compared to what he had found in Christ. And, 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 and God just poured that into my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and just opened my eyes and showed me, look, it doesn't matter what you lose. It doesn't matter what you walk away from or what you give up or, or, or what happens to you because you have Christ and you are secure. And although my physical life was never at stake, I knew that 
I would, my, my familial relationships would never be the same if not lost completely. Same thing with my friends, same thing with my community, my culture, my, my, certainly my reputation, um, even down to my, my scholarship and career path through yeah. Brigham Young University. Um, I, I couldn't ever go back to that life and, and I would have to start all over. Um, but Jesus is enough and, and he is worth the loss of all things. And so I went to my Mormon leader, and, and one of the scriptures that like, has been the theme verse of like, the sufficiency of Christ is, is John 6.35. And it's the passage where you know, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and they're satisfied, and there's extra, which has great symbolism in and of itself. But then he leaves, and then he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and he kind of escapes from the crowd. And then the following day, the crowd tracks him down, and they come to him, and they're like, we want more. Well, what they wanted more of was physical sustenance, right? You gave us food. You satisfied us. We want more of that. And Jesus kind of like mildly rebukes them and then gives one of the greatest sermons in all of Scripture where he basically reveals himself as the manna that came down from heaven, right? Well, he goes on in John 6, 35, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so that reality and that reminder that if you have Christ, you will never be hungry and you will never be thirsty again. And even Jesus knew, like his calling, his ministry was not healing people physically. I mean, yes, he did do that, but ultimately he didn't go and just give them bread every day, every day, every day. He said, I'll give you a bread that if you partake of it, you will never be hungry of again. Right? And same thing with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 at Jacob's well. Right? You know, and so that he was that living waters. And so if we drank of him, we would never be thirsty again. And so I had found that. And I was satisfied in Christ. And God gave me the strength. And so I, I went to my Mormon leader. I had no idea what I was going to say. I had no idea what he was going to say. But I was ready. And by the grace of God, I was willing that whatever the cost was, you know, bring it on. And so I sat with my Mormon leader and for three hours we talked. I mean, it was a very deep, like theological, doctrinal discussion. Um, and basically I told him, look, I've been reading the Bible and I've come to recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. I don't need this church. I don't need any particular denomination, any man, any, any religious authority, you know, to be saved. I don't need anything except for my faith in Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God. Like Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. And there's one God and one man, um, and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, and that he was the only high priest and, and, and the eternal high priest, and that I didn't need all these other things that my religion was offering me, and it wasn't just Mormonism. You know, it wasn't about Mormonism can't save you, neither can Catholicism, neither can being a Baptist or a Catholic or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist or whatever. Um, only the name above all names can, can bring us eternal life. And so as I told him that I didn't need the Mormon prophet anymore, and that was a pretty direct thing to say. <laughs> um, but I knew that like, I, I didn't need any man anymore to, to be the person to stand between me and God because I'd had that my whole life in Mormonism. Even, even the process of repentance, of forgiveness through Mormonism, similar in Catholicism, I had to go through a man in order to find penitence and forgiveness for my sins. 
And so here I was, and I, I shared all of this, these things with him, and he asked me like very direct questions. Well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? And I gave him you know, honest and direct answers, and, and I knew that I had incriminated myself in the eyes of, of my church and my religion. And um, long story short, um, my mission was, was cut short. You know, I was deemed unworthy to continue on as a missionary. I was basically a heretic. I was told that I was filled with the spirit of the devil and that I'd been deceived by Satan and that I was you know, on the path to outer darkness, which is the Mormon equivalent to hell. Um, and so I ended up going back to Utah. So my, my mission was terminated early, and I got put on a plane, and I had to go back to Utah. And I tell you, that was, that was a, a long plane ride. Um, and just considering facing my father and my mother and my siblings and my life. And I'd actually talked to my dad uh, previously um, on the phone the day before. Um, and my leader had called him and told him that I was filled with the spirit of the devil. <laughs> and that was like their heads up to him. <laughs> Um, and credit to my father for, for his unconditional fatherly love. And, and although he didn't verbalize it, he said, I, I knew that's not my son. My son does not have the spirit of the devil in him. I know my son. And I remember talking to him that night. And, you know, he was stern, but he was loving. Um, and, and I said, Dad, like, I, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I, I, I found something different. Like, I don't believe in the church anymore. And he said, we'll figure this out. Just, just come home and we'll figure this out. And, and one of the things he said to me was, no matter what, just know that I still love you. Wow. What an awesome thing. That's not the experience for a lot of people who no. come out of Mormonism. No. Trust me, I've had plenty of people that I knew and loved call me every name in the book. But my, my parents were at least compassionate through that process. But I, I was, but make no mistake, I was still afraid to face them. Oh, you know, man. I mean... The, they had raised me in this religion. They had forsaken the religion of their use to join Mormonism. I mean, all this stuff that they had done to be faithful, zealous, devout examples to us children. And here I was basically saying that they were wrong, you know, simply by my actions of removing myself from, you know, the faith. And, and so I got home and I faced my parents and my siblings and just, just embracing them and just, just crying at the airport when I saw them. Um, and so immediately from the airport, they took me to my Mormon leader in Utah. No break, no nothing. And I didn't know this going into it. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm there and we're going. It's like we're going to meet with this particular, you know, leader. And I was just terrified. And this guy intimidated me. And, and we sat down. And so I had my parents there. And then we sat with this leader. And it was really interesting because... I was nervous, but like I, I wasn't angry, like I wasn't anxious, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have like any anxiety or like, like antipathy towards him. I just, I, I felt at least at peace, but I was still like nervous about, you know, the situation. But he came right out of the gate, just very condemning of me. He was very judgmental. Um, he, he, he was just kind of angry and he did all this in front of my parents and it was actually like shocking for them like here's this night 21 year old kid that all he's doing is professing Jesus and his Mormon leader is just kind of you know yeah blasting me and calling me an antichrist and all these other things and so it actually made it a lot easier for me to stay calm because I knew you know that he was kind of witnessing against himself in the way that he's interacting with me in front of my parents 
And, um, and I had the opportunity even there to just share a simple testimony with him and tell him what I had found in Christ and that I didn't believe that I needed Joseph Smith anymore and the church and, and all these other things and uh, shared the word of God with him. And so um, that all kind of ended and we went back that night and I had a discussion with my parents in the kitchen and it was pretty short. My older, one of my older brothers was there. My younger sister was there as well. And... Um, and I, I just shared with them the gospel as, as simply and clearly as I could communicate it at the time. I was no theologian. I'm not a theologian now. Um, but I just, I knew what Jesus had done for me and I knew the power of his word in my life. And so the one thing that I knew I could do was point them to the source, just like Pastor Benson had done for me. And that I could say the same thing to my family. You don't have to trust me. Um, just go to the Bible and, and come to know the sufficiency of Christ alone for your salvation. And so I, I, had a, I was in Florida, or I was, excuse me, I was in Utah there for just, just a couple days. And I, I went to my parents in the middle of the night. And I said, Mom and Dad, like, I can't be here anymore. Like, this isn't my home. And, and I just knew that that wasn't where God wanted me. And to their credit, they understood and they bought me a plane ticket and sent me back to Florida and I'd made some connections on my mission there and, and had a place to live. And that's a whole other story. Um, and, and I left and, and I never looked back. And so my Mormon girlfriend actually met me out in Florida and we ended up running away and eloping at Disney World and, and starting our, our new lives as believers. Um, I was, that was my 21st birthday. Wow. And so um, we knew that it, whatever God did in the lives of our family members and our community, everything else, that, that we were called to be faithful to the gospel. And so we started, you know, just living for Christ. And um, as that was going on, as God was doing what he was doing with us in Florida, God was also working in the hearts and lives of, of my family members. You know, Jesus said that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, you know. And so God began to draw them individually in different ways. My older brother, Matt, was a Going into his, his senior year at Brigham Young University, he was on a full-ride scholarship. Uh, my brother is an incredibly accomplished uh, pianist. He was the number one pianist there at the university, um, was a year away from graduating, and his younger brother gets kicked off his mission yeah. <laughs> and presents him with the gospel. And so my brother, um, with all the things that were going on in his life, he just went to the Word of God, I think, out of, out of curiosity. And God began to open his eyes. And in fact, for him as well, it was the book of Hebrews. Um, he, he, he could not find a cleansed conscience in Mormonism. And you can't, because you can't ever know if you're truly forgiven or if you've done enough. And he found that cleansing of his evil conscience through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he got saved, and his girlfriend got saved, and then he ended up walking away from his scholarship, from everything in his life, and following Jesus. My younger sister was a senior in high school, uh, at a high school that was 98% Mormon, <laughs> and God had prepared her as well. Within months, like my, brother, my older brother and my younger sister both came to saving faith in Jesus. And in fact, I don't, we didn't mention this earlier, but like Mormons don't use the symbol of, of the cross, and many people have probably noticed that. They don't have crosses you know, on yeah. their walls, on their... 
on their steeples or anything. And so my, my sister, after she got saved, started attending her Mormon seminary class wearing a cross. Oh my. And, and wore it to school. And like, that's just like been her, t- she's been the most unabashed uh, witness of Jesus Christ as you could possibly imagine. And who's imagine. on top of the temple then on Mormon temples, the gold statue yeah. with the trumpet? Who's yes. that? So that is the angel Moroni. Moroni. And, and his kind of special thing was that he appeared to Joseph Smith and was the one that kind of gave him instructions on the translation of the it's Book Mor- of Mormon. Moroni. Yeah, Moroni. Some people call him Moroni. Yeah, it's Moroni. Moroni. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. It's the correct way to pronounce it. Yeah, and so she got saved. And so here my parents are living in Alpine, Utah, which is one of the, if not the highest percentage of Mormon you know, in a community in the oh, world, yeah. 99%-ish. And here, they're ne- you know, they're next door neighbors with the church itself. I mean, our property literally borderline the property, uh, you know, the parking lot of the church. And all their kids now are born again converted Christians. My mom's a professor at BYU. You know, they have these, these callings and these positions within the ward. Their son gets kicked off his mission for apostasy. Two of their other children have now professed faith in the biblical, biblical Christ and left Mormonism. And, you know, what are they supposed to do? You know, and how, and, and how do they continue on? Obviously, every, um, you know, rumor in the world started floating. I mean, even for me, there's YouTube videos about me that aren't even about me, about why I left Mormonism and all these things about how I slept with girls on my mission and another one about how I was homosexual, which I I figure you gotta pick one or the other, you know, but all the, and so even within my family and their community and their neighborhood, all these things were beginning to, you know, circulate. So, you know, I I think about like, it's a very difficult position for them to be in. Uh, I I mean, I, I just, you know, obviously, God did what he did in my life and there is no hiding that. And I don't like want to take personal responsibility for putting them in that position, but you know, it's just tough. Like, like what kind of what I did put them in. Um, so through the whole thing though, my parents did one thing and that was they read the Bible. They, they accepted that invitation. My parents loved the Bible. They read the Bible a lot as Mormons. They grew up in Christian homes, you know, so the Bible had been a part of their lives. Um, and so they were eager and, and I think for them it was looking at their son and saying look he's not leaving Mormonism to go off and to indulge in every desire of the flesh like he's not going off to party and be with girls nor is he abandoning his faith in God he's not becoming agnostic or atheist or whatever like here's this this the same son that they knew and loved who had the same zeal for God, but whose, whose zeal was now, instead of being directed toward the church, was all being directed toward Christ alone. And I think that that at least gave them enough motivation to want to know why. Like why was, not only why was my zeal directed to Christ alone, but why was I willing to walk away from my life? And they knew the cost. They knew what I was giving up. They knew that I, I was losing every relationship and every friendship and, and all the things that I had worked my entire life to bolster that reputation in the community and, and within my own congregation. And, and, and I was just, I was the Saul of Tarsus, you know? And so they went to the Word of God. It was a very different process for both my mother and my father. For my mother, Hers really, she went to the Gospel of John. Like that's, for some reason, that's where she wanted to start, which is an awesome place to start. If anybody's wanting to just go to the scriptures, if you want to know truth, 
That's a great place to start. Go to the Gospel of John. And in John 1, 1, she read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And right there, she recognized that the nature of the Jesus that she knew and adhered to in Mormonism was different than that which was revealed in Scripture, that Jesus was God. And so that began something in her, that God began to open her eyes. And so through the reading of the Word of God, her eyes were open to the gospel of Christ. And she recognized um, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone to save her, that Mormonism was, was a false gospel, was a false church. All this while she was still a professor at BYU, which put her in a various, very precarious situation. And she did what a lot of people try to do, and that was that she, I think she had these grandiose intentions to kind of reform Mormonism from within. <laughs> maybe what Martin Luther thought he could do in Catholicism or what a lot of people think. And so she thought, well, maybe I can be like undercover, an undercover Christian in Mormonism, teach at BYU, influence people, you know, that sort of thing. But of course, we know that we can't serve two masters and we cannot serve the law and grace and, 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 and we can't pour uh, new wine into old wineskins, lest they burst. And so, you know, we, we, we have that which is the fulfillment of everything that the law was pointing towards. So we can't hold on to the law. What is becoming old is growing old and, and, and becoming obsolete and vanishing away. And, and that's what's happened now. We have the new covenant of Christ. And so she eventually realized that. My father actually stuck around a bit longer. He stayed in the church and, and my mom even stopped going to church. And it was like, man, our family is just totally apostatized. <laughs> he was going alone, um, your dad? He was going alone. And, and like people, for some reason, didn't really seem to even notice, you know, what was going on and um, with my mom. And I think for him, the straw that broke the camel's back for my father um, but I think it's Luke 18, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And of course, you have the Pharisee who stands up there and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Uh, I, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And, and then it goes to the tax collector. And it says that he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one that humbles himself will be exalted. And, and for my father, it was like he just, God broke him with the Holy Spirit. And just he, he, he walked away and was like, I am the Pharisee. Like realizing like wow. he was that man. It was cool, you know, because God uses so many different things in so Absolutely. many different ways. But like to have kind of those epiphanies, right? Those spiritual epiphanies where God just hits us with truth and the power of his word. And so he recognized that that was him and that he was the Pharisee. And, um, and, and so I, I think from there, he, he stopped going to church. And my mother eventually, she, she resigned her tenured position at BYU. And my mother and father left uh, their very comfortable lives in Utah and they replanted in Southern Florida. Uh, after several years, four or five years of being deep in the Word of God and, and, and growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ, they, they founded their own ministry. And they have been all, all over the world now <laughs> sharing their testimonies of the gospel, the grace of God. And so, um, you know, to see not only the salvation that God has brought forth in my life, but of, you know, two of my siblings, of my parents, um, and to be reminded that, that nobody is beyond the reaches of 
God's grace, you know, that there is no background or situation um, that, that God cannot redeem. And, and the people that, that often we think are the most irredeemable, we need to be the most loving and zealous to share truth with, you know. People want to lump Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, uh, and, and Muslims and whatever in these categories and say difficult to reach people groups. And, and often what that means is I don't want to reach them because they're not going to receive the truth. And, and, and what that creates in us is kind of this, this apathy. And then we don't because like our mindset is, well, what's the point of sharing it with them? Because I already know this Mormon missionary, this BYU professor, this, you know, zealous uh, Muslim that they're not going to they're not going to receive it. They're just going to reject it. Um, but we know that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And how are they to hear unless someone preaches to them? <laughs> and, and we are all called to preach. I mean, whether it's from the pulpit or not, every saved believer is part of the Great Commission, That's which right. is to go out into all the world and proclaim Christ to to all creation and to make disciples of all nations. And so uh, it's been this incredible journey of seeing the power of the gospel in my life and wanting other people to know what I found and thinking about this bold, loving Christian pastor who was willing to step out of his comfort zone and to share truth with a 19-year-old Mormon missionary and not knowing what the result of that was going to be. I remember after my mission, I looked up Pastor Benz and he was no longer at that church in Florida. He, he was at a church in North Carolina at that time. And so I looked him up and I called him <laughs> and I said, Pastor Benson, you might know me as Elder Wilder. I was a Mormon missionary in Winter Garden, Florida in 2004. Do you remember me? And he's like, oh, I remember you. <laughs> and, uh, and I shared my story with him. And one of the things that he told me that I have never forgotten, he said, I walked away from that meeting that day feeling like nothing I said made any impact in your life. I felt like in some ways it was a failure because in the moment, face to face, the reaction was not good. I was angry. I was frustrated. Um, I condemned him. And I, I'm sure that he saw that as well. You know, no fruit was to be born from that experience. And, and I remember him telling me that, and I've thought about that so often, that that one seed you don't know what's going to happen. And when you talk to that person at the grocery store or at the truck stop or the person behind you in line at Walmart or, or whatever, that homeless person on the street or that Muslim or that Mormon missionary or the Jehovah's Witnesses that comes to your door on a Saturday morning, you have no idea the, the, the impact that one seed of truth can make in their lives. But we have to do that. Like we're called to plant and to water those seeds, but God and God alone gives the growth. And so I just, I love the fact that we can go out there and just scatter seeds, that we can love people and plant truth in their hearts and not, like one thing I've learned in ministry is not my concern how people respond to the gospel. It's, it's just my concern to tell them and to do it in love and to speak the truth in love and to leave the rest up to God. And so... I stand in, in the grace of Christ and, 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 and give him all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for this miraculous change that, that he's made. And, and I just, I want, I want Mormons, I want 
anybody to know the freedom that, that I have found in Jesus Christ. And it's not this arbitrary freedom to go out and just to do whatever I want. It, it, it is a freedom to love God because he first loved me and, and to know that I have the forgiveness of my sins through the blood of Christ. And, and just to end it with this, Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes. All to the glory of God. Amen. Brother, powerful testimony. So thankful for you and your ministry and what God is doing through you. Keep it up. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. And be sure to keep an eye out on our YouTube channel, our website, and social media for the Truth and Love series on Mormonism. Again, Micah and I filmed over 30 videos that are going to answer the biggest questions about Mormonism that can help you and bless you no matter where you are at in your relationship with God or lack thereof. We want to help you and we want to encourage you. Uh, for more free resources, you can go to forthegospel.org or follow us on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And be sure to subscribe on YouTube so you can get the latest resources that we are putting out for free. And lastly, I just want to say a special thank you to you who are our gospel patrons and our partners. Because of your generosity, we're able to keep on producing and putting out for free these incredible resources via video, social media, podcast, and now extended evangelism resources like the Truth and Love series. We'll be back next Monday with another episode. For now, keep on living for the gospel.